That is insane. He literally is like, we must cede the planet to the inhumans. Mutant kind must leave Earth. And it's like, are you kidding me? Get the fuck out of here. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Spencer Ackerman, national security reporter for the Daily Beast and author of the upcoming book, Reign of Terror, which argues that the American response to 9-11 destabilized our political system and precipitated the rise of far-right nationalism in this country. In 2014, while working on national security reportage at The Guardian, Spencer was part of a team that won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting on the Edward Snowden affair. Spencer is here with me today to talk about a complicated character, Hank McCoy, the bouncing beast, who has taken a sharp authoritarian turn over the last decade or so of publication. Spencer, thank you for being my guest today. How are you doing? I am held together with bailing wire, thumbtacks, duct tape, and gum. Uh, it has been <laughs> an extremely long week. Uh, yeah, I have been covering the election, which, as we record this, has still not been officially called. We're recording on Friday night on the 6th, and yeah, it has not been called yet. So, But, Connor, I've got to tell you something. Go for it. Your podcast has been everything I've wanted in quarantine. A deep, deep, deep conversation about the X-Men, about it, it, its, its broader contexts, particularly socially and politically, especially because like all of my actual friends who I talk about this with are kind of like past humoring me on it at this point. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I've really got to say the, the podcast is just absolutely incredible. It has been for the last, I guess, week or so, two weeks since I've discovered it, like Wellbutrin for me during <laughs> this period. Well, I'm really happy to help. This has kept me sane through quarantine, so I'm happy to pay that forward. I will tell you this. On election night, during a period where, because I'm, I'm the guy at that point, like, watching for violence. So right. as the, you know, early returns come in and, like, I'm not seeing that, you know, pop up, I don't have so much to do. At that point, you know, relative to to the rest of of my newsroom, certainly. And so, like, I got to uh, put on your podcast, uh, (laughs) turn the TV to PBS and put it on mute. Because at that point, you've got, like, with PBS, like, you don't care what they're talking about and frankly, neither do they. No, it's about, you know, you're just watching for the information to come through. It's not punditry in the same way. and, And not to be, you know, clockwork oranged it. Like with John King on right, CNN. Right, right. No, exactly. I can't watch any cable news at all. It just, it gets my blood pressure up, I think. So I just rely on Twitter, of course, because that's a very calming environment. We don't really have good options anymore. <laughs> yeah, naturally, deeply nurturing to watch an election on Twitter. Nothing, you know, panic-inducing about that. Yeah, not at all. Certainly not on Tuesday night. Oof. I fully just went off the grid. Like, I turned off all my stuff. I watched a movie or something. I was just like, I can't. And then I came back and they were like, well, we won't know for a few days. And I was like, that's what I figured. Great. Okay. I am glad I got my medical marijuana card. That's all I have to say about that. Indeed. (laughs) So 
I am excited to talk to you about Beast and about Krakoa because obviously you are a much bigger political thinker than I am in terms of it being your job. And I'm sometimes hesitant to dig deep on all of the foreign policy illusions and allegories going on right now in the X universe because I don't want to say something stupid. I prefer to say something stupid like last week when I referred to James Marsden as James Marsters, who is a completely different actor. Who, who among us? Well, I... I think there's a big difference in my in my heart of hearts. There's a big difference between them, although they were both sexy icons of that late 90s, early aughts period, I suppose. I do have some other notes before we get started. First, I just want to say a big congratulations to Grant Morrison, who, if you are a listener of this podcast, you know, is one of my patron saints in comics. It's sort of them and Chris Claremont and a couple other people in that pantheon. Grant has always played with gender and sexuality and the way that can be complicated in their work. And their prose nonfiction book, Super Gods, talked a bit more openly about a history of what they call cross-dressing and about sort of presenting females sometimes at different moments in their life. In an interview this week, Grant officially declared that they identify as a non-binary, genderqueer, trans person and requested that they be referred to with they, them pronouns going forward. And I think that this is a huge, huge moment for them, clearly, but also for comics as a medium. Grant Morrison is one of the most influential, if not the most influential, writers in comics of the last, I would say, 25 years. And I think this is massive, and I'm really happy for them. I've had the good fortune to meet them a couple times. I can't wait to have some opportunity again. When I did meet them, I told them, I've said this on the podcast before, that I wanted to be Emma Frost when I grew up, mm. that that was how I felt when I was reading New X-Men as a teenager, and that she had meant a lot to me as a gay teenager because I saw the way that gender and performance and things like that were so in her character. So I'd love to have a chance to talk to Grant about that character again, and actually about Xavier and Cassandra Nova. But I just wanted to say congrats to Grant. This is a fantastic thing. Another correction, in a recent episode, I referred to Cannonball's alien wife. Listener Reese Indigo pointed out my mistake on Twitter because Smasher, real name Izzy Kane, Cannonball's wife, while she is a member of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, is actually a human from Earth and the first to be invited to join the Shi'ar Imperial Guard. In my defense, that happened in the Avengers, and I don't read the Avengers, so I forgot. I am sure that she will factor more into X-Men books now that she is Cannibal's wife. So I am going to go back and do a lot of reading of Hickman's Avengers soon because I think that it probably will factor into this period and I don't want to not know what I'm talking about. So thank you for that correction. The last thing I sort of want to talk about before we jump into Hank is on last week's episode, my guest Patrick Sullivan and I briefly raised the question of whether it would be a good idea to make Mystique a textually trans character. Neither of us felt that we were equipped to opine in detail, so we encourage trans listeners to write in. And with permission from those listeners, I just want to read three responses that we got. Julie Afrime writes, So, you asked for a few trans people's thoughts on making Raven trans. I'm honestly ambivalent. I do consider them, as Vida Ayala has said, non-binary. Gender either doesn't matter or is mutable to her. This feels more genuine than making her binary trans. Don't get me wrong, shapeshifting is my first choice for mutant powers for exactly this reason. But as a shapeshifter, Raven passes. That's a very fraught word. For some trans people, it matters so much. For others, they don't care. I think most of us move between those two poles based somewhat on external pressure. 
I want a trans mutant so much it makes my heart ache. I've been reading X-Men since the Outback days. When I was younger and didn't fully understand the fact that I was trans, it was really important that Kate Pride was a Jew. She was like me. I want a trans character and I don't want the fact that they're trans to be their defining characteristic. Dreamer on Supergirl does a good job with this. I do want it to be important. I think of the adjective transgender in the same way that I think about my left-handedness. It affects every single part of my day, but in small and subtle ways. That for me is what it's like, and I want a character who's like that. I'm absolutely loving the show. X-Men has become one of the touchstones of my life. In many ways, it's Jay and Miles that finally made me understand I was trans. You're doing an amazing job. I love how many queer people are bringing X-Men to life. Thanks for broadcasting, Julie. Well, thank you, Julie. Lily Honor writes, Hi, Connor. I've really enjoyed the podcast since I discovered it a few weeks ago. It brings me something to be excited about every Tuesday. I was excited to see this week's episode was about Mystique. Mystique has been a very important character to me since I was in my early teenage years. When you asked for people's opinions on Mystique's gender, I had to send my thoughts. To me, Mystique is a gender-fluid trans person as we know that she's lived both as male and as female. She also seems to be comfortable with both genders. I'm personally still figuring out my gender identity in terms of labels, but I feel myself leaning more and more toward that gender-fluid label. I've been drawn to non-normative gender expression since a young age, and I feel Mystique was one of the early touchstones for me especially. I have wanted a writer to explore her gender identity for the past few years. While the movies focus on her relationship with her blue form to varying degrees of success, I feel the comics could do something similar around Mystique's relationship to her gender. Maybe some flashbacks of her when she was young, struggling to decide how to present, since she can look however she wants. I feel there is a lot to explore, and hopefully buy a trans writer. I do hope Marvel makes her transness canon soon. I'm excited about future episodes and to hear more discussions of the many X-Men characters. I appreciate you reaching out to trans people for this topic. Thank you, Lily, for writing in. Finally, Callie Rezebeck writes, Hi, Connor. Big fan of the show. Big fan of the whole X-Family. I'm a trans woman, and while I would prefer a less duplicitous character be made retroactively trans, I really vibe with trans mystique. However, if I had my way, I'd much rather retcon Emma Frost into being a trans woman, as her backstory really meshes well with the trans feminine experience, with the only real barrier being all the weirdness with the Stepford Cuckoos, but that could be easily shifted. Love the show. Thanks, Callie. Well, thank you so much to all three of you for writing in. I really appreciate it, and thank you for the kind words about the show. I just know that Mystique as a trans character is an idea that's always excited some of my trans friends, especially some trans women and trans feminine people in my life. But I realize she's a somewhat fraught character who would play into certain stereotypes, as you point out, about trans women being deceptive. And obviously no group is a monolith, so I wanted to open the floor and see if we could get a variety of opinions. All I can say is I hope we do get a variety of trans characters in the X universe soon, written by trans writers in addition to, you know, allies. I think it's important that we get actual trans talent on the books doing that. And I'm thrilled that Vita Ayala is getting to helm new mutants and and to write incredible issues of all sorts of things and i'm excited to see what they will do with children of the atom i think that trans representation in this franchise is really overdue given that this is a franchise that has always drawn on minority experiences and that in the 80s especially and early 90s really trafficked in allusions to the queer community so i would love to see that soon also callie your point about emma frost i think is really interesting and i've also heard that in the past from trans women friends of mine i think part of what grant does in new x-men that revolutionizes emma as a character especially for queer readers is the way she plays with femininity as a performance and leans hard into gender presentation as a way of navigating the world or almost as a defense mechanism i mean as she points out to hank and Jean, her secondary mutation is literally to become jewelry 
I think the way that she enacts femininity versus the way Jean does, the way Cassandra Nova does, is a really rich vein for potential analysis. I don't know. I'm just really excited to see any retrospective writing from trans critics that might come out of Grant's recent announcement about their own gender identity, because I think that's super cool as a lens, and I love new X-Men, so I would love to see anything about that. In any case, this episode is about a very cisgender heterosexual character, no matter what Trish Tilby might tell you. So let's dig into Hank McCoy. Spencer, thanks again for joining me. Why did you want to talk about the Beast? I think no one, you know, wants to dislike Beast, right? Like, particularly if you like his presentation on the 90s cartoons, certainly. Right. Where he's the the star of possibly, I think, their single best episode, the Beauty and the Beast episode. Yeah, it's a good one. But I feel like we've got to talk about what Hank McCoy has become. In particular, you know, he's become a Genesee Dare. And this really raises just a million questions about what we've got with Krakoa, both, you know, in terms of specifically like the the Hank McCoy X-Force and where it's going, but what they're trying to say with Krakoa. I haven't truly, I think, made up my mind about what I think about all the different reference that they're going with there i you know to be really clear i think the krakoa status quo is if you know not the best status quo since claremont quite possibly the best x-men status quo ever i think it's absolutely genius i think it wouldn't work without claremont and morrison which are the clear reference in terms of x-men i think that you need both of those runs so that this run where it's like and now we're in control finally hits the way that it does yeah to be sure grant morrison walked so jonathan hickman and crew could fly i agree with you though that in terms of me wanting to pick up every single book and read every single book this is the best status quo they've ever had i certainly never during the morrison run felt enormously compelled to pick up every single title that's a great point yeah you know and this is line wide there is not a single one like i'm not a big x-force person i i just never have been and i'm not a huge wolverine solo person and i just never have been but i love what ben percy's doing and Usually, I wouldn't bother to buy X-Force, but I'm buying everything. You know what I mean? Like, it's all worth reading. I I know exactly what you mean. I think that having a status quo be a line-wide, you know, mini-universe, certainly a shared reality, the books all have to contend with and build on even when they're not crossing over, is the most satisfying way to go about a line as, you know, very often sprawling as the X-Men are, because then you also get comments, uh on the larger status quo from the intimate solo books as you do explorations of the dynamic raised in such a status quo in the team books. So you get to scale up and scale down with tremendous narrative efficiency, and it's just exquisite as a reader when it's done as as unparalleled as it's being done right now. Everyone who's working on these books, I think, is just doing something so creatively extraordinary that we'll appreciate for years to come. And I don't want anything that I say about these characters, particularly Hank, to in any way indicate that I feel remotely otherwise. Everyone's doing just fantastic. Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like a shill a lot of the time on this podcast because I have almost nothing negative to say about the current run. (laughs) I'm buying everything. I just really don't. I liked Fallen Angels. I don't understand why a lot of people didn't. I, I was not crazy about Fallen Angels, but I understood what it was trying to do. And I think that if it had had more time, it might have been able to do that. 
it was truncated because of outside factors and mm. the narrative didn't quite work for me. But here's the thing. It led into Hellions yes. where Kanon is becoming an absolute star of the books right now. So I am grateful for that, if nothing else. And I am grateful, Connor, for you, after all of these years, teaching me how to pronounce Kanon. <laughs> Well, you know, it's not obvious. I mean, Nicieza said that he certainly has always said it with a W, but I think that the Japanese speakers have spoken at this point on the Kanon Kwanon issue, and I am going to do my best. It's not like Celine, where I simply refuse, <laughs> even though I know better. Here's why, honestly. I think that the messiness of that storyline is so vast that it feels like a necessary gesture of respect to pronounce her name correctly. Yes. Like cultural respect. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, I'm just like, I got to do this. Whereas I'm not really worried about like offending ancient Romans right. by mispronouncing Celine, you know? Although that's Greek and it doesn't really make a ton of sense that she's named that in an ancient Roman society. What's your sort of origin story with the X-Men? I usually do mm -hmm. have people come on to talk about their favorites. I may end up doing another episode on Beast eventually with someone who's like a Beast fan. But for me, Beast has really become the most problematic. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but I mean, like in the text, the trickiest one. And I wanted to get insight on that from someone who is a political person by trade. And when you suggested it, I was like, yes, let's do that. But I would love to hear about your sort of X-Men history generally. Yeah. So my mother taught me how to read with the Bill Mantlo run of Incredible Hulk. Mm. So there were just sort of always comics around. And because it was something toward reading, my mother had no problem getting me comics. And I don't remember where exactly I started reading the X-Men. I honestly must have been something like seven or eight. And this would have been like 1987, 1988. And I read Excalibur. I loved New Mutants. I read the main X book and really loved that. Would dip in and out of Wolverine. But around that time, a couple years later, you would have the Larry Hama, Mark Silvestri Wolverine, which is just an incredible yeah. run. Really loved Excalibur. I don't know what I said. I tried to like X Factor and mm. couldn't and just i was just too young to really latch in on that yeah i do think that x factor is a book that i also read it when i was like 11 or 12 i've been rereading the simonson x factor and it definitely hits more in my 30s <laughs> yeah and it's clear in retrospect when you read those books that you know particularly the simonsons run together on x factor is one of the absolute highlights of the for sure whole x history really and that was really the last time before this era that it felt as though the line was really all holistically being run together even when x factor was created by editorial fiat and claremont was unhappy about it when wheezy and claremont were sort of doing the x books it really did feel like everything fit into one another for the most part i don't know if i agree really yeah i think creatively from the the standpoint of having you know a really electric creative team from claremont to the simonsons to annie nocenti well and yeah i mean i think it helps that a lot of the editors were consistent like Anne nocenti yeah and we're like all working on the same stuff right you know for a lot of the character histories at that point the X-Men and X-Factor didn't even know each, you know, were still around. Yeah. So you didn't have until, you know, around, I want to say, Inferno. That was what I was thinking of specifically is like when you read Inferno, I didn't realize as a kid that Simonson had written those New Mutants issues. Yeah. It all reads very seamlessly as one story. It's the two of them sort of trading off. 
And I do think that it was collaborative. You know, she's said in interviews that she felt really bad for him and couldn't believe that the X Factor thing happened mm -hmm. because it had upset his apple cart so thoroughly and she never thought they would do that to him when he was so invested in all of those characters. So I think that she sort of did her best to dialogue and to make sure that their books worked well together. And I think that what the current X Office is doing is very similar. And what's very impressive about it to me is it's not two writers. It's a lot of yeah. writers. And you look at something like Ten of Swords, I think Ten of Swords is the best X-Men event since Inferno. Ooh. Yeah, I know. Bold, hot take. I do, though, in terms of a franchise-wide event. Because Morrison didn't really have those, you know what I mean? No, but I mean, so you think it's better than Extinction Agenda... It's better than Second Coming. Yes. Okay. I think the only one that comes close is Messiah Complex, but I think it's better than Messiah Complex. Okay. I'm very excited that, as you can imagine from like this period in, in my work, I am real behind. But I know you're caught up on X-Force, which has been Hank's book. I mean, it really is on some level a book about Hank McCoy, which is not what I expected going in and has been interesting. The storyline in Tierra Verde pushes him to a place that I think builds naturally on the Bendis era, but was shocking even to me as someone who is a noted Hank McCoy skeptic, let's say. Mm -hmm. But what really struck me was right before Ten of Swords in issue 12, when he goes full, you're either with us or against us on the Russian mutants and tosses Colossus into a cell and is like, we're going to get to the bottom of this and publicly humiliates him and all of this stuff. And he's known Colossus for a very long time. Now, here's the thing. He might be right about Colossus in this case, but it's one of those things where, uh, like, you can't justify that. No, like once a state apparatus, which is what X-Force is, decides that it's invested in determining Correct. the loyalty of a citizenship, it has lost its way profoundly, and it's only going to become a deepening cycle of violence and justification once that happens. I would imagine that, you know, the choice to do that probably from the start of the series to Colossus in particular is so a reader can, you know, fully understand that it's Hank doing this to not only someone who we understand as heroic, but also understand as guileless. Which even when, you know, Colossus goes to the Acolytes, he's a guileless right. person doing that. He's expressing, you know, genuinely his sense of, of betrayal and, and, and of his reconsideration of his life after Xavier recruits him to be a child soldier. Yeah, I think the trickiest thing he's ever done is actually in this X-Force run when he rewrites Domino's memory a little bit against her wishes. I think it is worth pointing out that one of the things that Nina says on panel to Colossus when they're talking about dying in the bay, mm -hmm. and then again repeats when they're on the train mission and it goes badly, is don't let them bring me back without my pain. Right. Hank is violating that. The implication is that it's Pyotr who decides that she should come back without that. Oh, I can't, I, okay, I did not pick up on that. Yeah, it took me a reread. It took me a reread. Go back, because it's a little, it's subtle. Well, okay, well, then that kind of undermines my point about Pyotr being guileless. Well, but that's what I'm saying is he yeah. historically has been. I think that the book is trying to make you question whether he still is. I see. So that you're like, is Hank right? 
I mean, from the first issue of X-Force, they say, you guys will be our CIA. And if you're someone who is a more left-leaning American, or literally anyone overseas anywhere, you probably find that to be an alarming idea. The idea that any new nation says, let's set up our equivalent of the CIA. The premise of X-Force has been it's here to do the dirty work that has to be done. And I think the question that Percy is asking is, does that work have to be done? I think there's an important difference here that Krakoa creates, particularly after Second Coming. Actually, is it Second Coming where like Cyclops finds out about X-Force and he's like, shut this shit down? Uh, it's No, it's, it's Hank who actually Beast. does that, remember. It's Beast. It's Beast. <laughs> yeah. Yes, no. It's That's Be- what's so weird about yeah, this. Exactly. New like, turn. Beast yeah, tells, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. Before this status quo, it's, he it's, spent it's, years, right, years. He spent years shitting on Scott and Emma yes. for being pragmatic and making bad moral choices. Yes. You know, Beast is. Beast is clearly a cop, so like this doesn't this turn. Oh, he joined the Avengers in 1975. Yes, exactly. He's been a cop for a long time. Yeah. So let's let's point let's okay. So let's take a bit of a of a stab at at this for a second. Not only is he at that point in the status quo, you know, destroyed his relationship with Scott over refusing to see the necessity of something like X Force. The thing that he's really egregiously demonstrating in his hatred of X-Force in that incarnation and his leadership of it in this current incarnation is the relationship between the X-Men and state power. And this is a crucial distinction for considering both morally and pragmatically how to view the Krakoa X-Force team. Before Krakoa, mutants are hunted to extinction, vivisected, treated as property, tortured, Mm -hmm. depending on where you are in the mutant ideological spectrum, if not for the X-Men, if not for Magneto, if not for the Mutant Liberation Front, mutant kind would not survive, would not be free. Correct. And that's a matter of survival. When the X-Men achieve state power, this circumstance changes tremendously because now you've got the X-Men no longer using the kind of force that they've wielded. Once you've got on Krakoa the existence of a security apparatus, however justified, that apparatus is going to take on prerogatives of its own in a way that I think sometimes the mutant books don't really deal with. Like Utopia, for instance, was a military dictatorship under Cyclops. Yes. Mm-hmm. And Which is what Hank kept objecting exactly. to. Exactly. And it's all like <laughs> the closest thing we got to a forthright treatment of that, I think, is Kieran Gillen's yes. Uncanny, where like in that first issue, you've got, you know, people talking like the difference between North Korea and Saddam. Hussein is nuclear weapons. Here are our nuclear weapons that we will be showing the world. I love how Gillen writes Emma in that run in particular, who I think is a tricky character for people to land. He basically reinvents Sinister mm-hmm. to the point where, where like Kieran's Sinister is now hegemonic. Yes, that's Sinister now. Yeah. Yeah, that's Sinister. Like a Sinister that works better than could have ever worked in the past. Well, it's a much better Sinister because the problem with Sinister is that Sinister has always been extraordinarily goofy. So you have to lean into the goofiness of Sinister or he doesn't really work, in my opinion. So I like the goofier Sinister because he's still really evil, but he's fun. You have to make it fun or like the big gay cape and the makeup and everything just doesn't quite land. Like he has to be campy or it doesn't work. Hyper serious, like minimal camp Sinister just... It, it's it's not there. It's a, a shell of what the character should be. 
And I think that's a good time for us to jump into the Cerebro character file just so that people have context on the political things we're talking about with Hank and on his whole deal. So let's do that real quick and then we will come back to continue this conversation. X-Men, X-Men. Henry Philip McCoy, called Hank and best known as the Beast, is an original X-Man and former member of the Avengers. Introduced in September 1963 as X-Men 1 by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, at first he is simply an atavistic character with large Neanderthal-like hands and feet. But after the book's cancellation, he was transformed into his more recognizable design as a furry blue bipedal humanoid. The brains of the team and a brilliant scientist, over the last 15 years of publication, his arrogance and his belief in his own superior intellect have severely impaired his moral compass. In the 60s stories, Hank isn't a particularly memorable character. He mostly serves as part of a two-piece with his best friend Bobby Drake, codenamed Iceman, the team's comic relief character. Hank's superior intellect is usually played for laughs as well, especially when juxtaposed with his habit of doing everyday things with his disturbingly prehensile feet. Briefly disillusioned with Xavier's dream after experiencing anti-mutant bigotry, he leaves the school for a bit to pursue a wrestling career, but rejoins the X-Men after encountering the mutant wrestler called Unis the Untouchable. He begins dating a human librarian, Vera Cantor, but does not tell her about his mutation or his secret life as a superhero. Backup stories from X-Men 49 to 53 reveal Beast's backstory. Born to Norton and Edna McCoy, Hank's mutation is the direct result of his father's exposure to radiation while averting a disaster at his workplace, a nuclear power plant. Unlike most mutants, Hank already displays his mutation from birth, in his case arriving as a newborn with absolutely massive hands and feet. As a young man, he becomes a star on his school football team, and after he's caught on television using his superhuman agility to stop a robbery at one of his games, he's targeted by a supervillain called the Conquistador, who kidnaps his parents to force him into becoming an accomplice. The McCoys are rescued by the X-Men, and Beast becomes the fourth member of the team, the final recruit before Marvel Girl's arrival in X-Men 1. As they depart for Westchester, Professor Xavier erases the memories of everyone in Hank's hometown who has seen him use his powers. After the cancellation of X-Men in 1970, the Beast was heavily revamped in March 1972's Amazing Adventures 11. At the suggestion of writer Roy Thomas, he was redesigned as a truly bestial character, covered in gray fur with a more animalistic appearance. In the story by Jerry Conway and Tom Sutton, Hank graduates from Xavier's and leaves the X-Men to take a job as a geneticist at the Brand Corporation, working for the sour Carl Maddox and assigned an attractive female assistant, Linda Donaldson. Hank manages to isolate a hormone that causes mutation, and is forced to use it on himself to stop Dr. Maddox from stealing classified government documents. The formula transforms Hank into the new Beast design, and though it's meant to be temporary, he fails to stop the robbery in time to take the time-sensitive antidote, and is stuck in his new form forever. Making lifelike latex facsimiles of his face and hands, and using a harness to force himself back into a human posture, Hank attempts to pass for human and begin a romantic relationship with Linda, who is actually a spy for the evil conspiracy called the Secret Empire, and apparently executes Maddox for his failure. After an encounter with Patsy Walker, who will eventually become the superheroine Hellcat, Hank's fur inexplicably turns from gray to blue, the color it has remained up to the present. He eventually comes to accept his new appearance, especially after Linda Donaldson betrays him to the Secret Empire, and he helps other superheroes, including his old teammates Cyclops and Marvel Girl, take the conspiracy down. Shortly thereafter, Beast successfully applies to become one of the Avengers. His adventures with that team are outside the purview of this podcast, but if you like the Avengers, you should give them a read. 
What's relevant is that Hank is too busy with the Avengers to accompany the 60s X-Men to Living Island Krakoa in the relaunch of the X-Men franchise, Giant Size X-Men number one. After a long time without seeing any of his old friends, Hank decides to visit Xavier's in 1978's X-Men 111 by Chris Claremont. He finds the mansion abandoned and tracks the team to a circus, where they have been mind-controlled by the evil mutant Mesmero and given new identities as circus performers. Hank manages to break Mesmero's spell, but the X-Men's old archenemy Magneto transports them all to his secret base in an Antarctic volcano. A cataclysmic battle between Magneto and Jean Grey, now codenamed Phoenix and significantly more powerful than she was as Marvel Girl, damages the base and creates a deluge of lava. Hank and Jean are separated from the other X-Men, whom they believe to have died in the disaster. Heading back to New York, Hank returns to the Avengers. He makes sporadic guest appearances in Uncanny X-Men over the next several years, first discovering the X-Men are in fact alive and directing them to Muir Island to battle the evil mutant Proteus, and later finding himself transported to outer space with the X-Men in the Dark Phoenix saga. After the death of Phoenix, he returns again to the Avengers, rekindling his relationship with his ex-girlfriend Vera Cantor, who gets poisoned by a Skrull. Don't worry about it. She gets better. Soon after this, he leaves the Avengers and joins the Defenders, and you don't need to worry about that either. Eventually, he's joined on that team by his old classmates Iceman and Angel. The Defenders was canceled in 1986, and all the Defenders save Iceman, Angel, and Beast are killed. The three original X-Men quickly join their old teammates Cyclops and Marvel Girl in the new book X-Factor, initially written by Bob Layton, but quickly taken over by Louise Simonson. Early in his time with the X-Factor team, Hank is captured by Dr. Carl Maddox, who somehow survived his apparent murder by Linda Donaldson. Maddox's young son, Artie, is a mutant, and his mutation has left him unable to speak. Maddox is attempting to develop a cure to eliminate mutancy, and tests it on Hank. Though it doesn't work fully, it does reverse the effect of the experimental hormone, turning Beast back into his original human-looking design from the 60s. After breaking up with Vera, whose new punk makeover turns him off, Hank meets investigative reporter Trish Tilby, who will become his longest-running love interest. While saving New York City from the ancient immortal mutant apocalypse, Hank is touched by Pestilence, one of Apocalypse's horsemen, and her mutant power over disease interacts strangely with the experimental formula Dr. Maddox tested on Hank. He's left with a strange new side effect. Every time he uses his superhuman strength, he loses some of his intellect. Over weeks, the situation becomes worse and worse, and he's eventually left childlike and barely capable of complex thought, naive enough to spill his guts to Trish Tilby. Feeling sympathetic to his plight, Trish doesn't identify him by name when she tells his story on the news. An encounter with the mutant Infectia, yes, Infectia, don't worry about it, ends up mutating Hank again. He shifts between his natural form and his blue-furred form uncontrollably, and finally stabilizes in furry form once more, with his genius-level intellect restored. Shortly thereafter, he and Trish begin dating, even though she's initially perturbed by his furry blue appearance. Trish's work as a reporter complicates the relationship, as she's often forced to portray mutants in a negative light. In the 1991 relaunch of the X-Men, the X-Men and X-Factor teams combine once more into one group, with Cyclops leading one squad, the Blue Team, and Storm leading the other, the Gold Team. Beast is assigned to the Blue Team and becomes a regular cast member in the new adjectiveless title, X-Men. In the 1992 event Executioner's Song, the time-traveling evil mutant Strife infects Professor Xavier with a techno-organic virus from the future. Hank works with the X-Men's ally, Dr. Moira McTaggart, to try to cure the Professor, but they're only able to succeed by collaborating with their enemy Apocalypse. Strife, in a final act before dying, releases a new plague of his own design into the atmosphere, the Legacy Virus, a highly infectious lethal disease that affects only mutants. 
After his teammate Colossus's little sister Ileana is one of the first infected patients to die, Hank spends most of the 90s working feverishly on developing a cure for the legacy virus. And after he fails again and again, he proves willing to allow a young mutant woman named Threnody, who has the power to sense the virus, to fall under the influence of the evil Mr. Sinister. Hank believes Sinister's greater resources will give him a better chance at curing the virus with Threnody's help, and the moral element of leaving her in his care becomes secondary. Hank eventually breaks up with Trish after she drops a ton of information on the virus on air without consulting him. When someone at the long-abandoned brand corporation hacks into his computer systems, Hank goes to investigate and is captured by Dark Beast, his evil alternate self from the reality known as the Age of Apocalypse, who escapes that destroyed timeline and reached Earth-616. Dark Beast holds Hank prisoner for weeks on end and takes over his life, infiltrating the X-Men. He ultimately reveals himself in order to aid the super-being Onslaught, a psychic gestalt of Professor Xavier and Magneto's consciousnesses. Don't worry about it. And the new X-Factor team led by Havoc and Polaris rescues Hank. Traumatized by his experience in captivity, Hank apologizes to Trish for blowing up at her, and the two start dating again. Trish ends up accompanying him on an adventure in Shi'ar space after the techno-organic aliens called the Phalanx attack. Afterward, Hank goes back to the lab and resumes his endless work on a cure for the legacy virus. In 2000, he succeeds, thanks to the notes of the recently deceased Moira McTaggart. Releasing the cure into the atmosphere will, however, require the suicide of a mutant, and Hank vows to find another way. But Colossus sacrifices himself, in honor of his sister Ileana. When Storm leads a splinter group of X-Men to track down the diaries of the late precognitive mutant Destiny in Chris Claremont's new title, Extreme X-Men, Hank is eager to help. There's a brief suggestion early in Extreme X-Men that Beast and Storm are fuck buddies, and I pretend I do not see it. Not long into his adventures with Storm's X-Men, Hank's teammate Psylocke attempts to defend him when they're attacked by the supervillain Vargas. Vargas murders Psylocke in single combat and then mortally wounds Hank. He's only saved by the intervention of their teammate Sage, who uses her dangerous ability to catalyze other people's mutations to trigger Hank's latent healing factor. This act also makes his mutation generally unstable, and soon after returning to the mansion to recover, in Grant Morrison's new X-Men, he undergoes a secondary mutation, evolving into a massive leonine form with paws and a cat-like face. Hank is devastated by his new appearance, and to add insult to injury, Trish Tilby ends their relationship, because the idea of sex with Hank now feels like bestiality to her. She eventually tries to apologize, but Hank is bitter and tells her he's actually gay and has been living a lie, just to get a rise out of her. Trish, angry, outs Hank as gay on national television. Though he isn't actually gay, Hank decides to embrace this new reputation in the hopes of being a role model to gay mutants who might need one. Cyclops finds this extremely strange. After the death, again, of Jean Grey, Hank is distressed by how quickly Cyclops moves on with Emma Frost. Hank and Emma are friends, but he finds her relationship with Scott distasteful, driving a wedge between himself and the new couple. Still, he joins Scott's new team of public-facing superhero X-Men in Joss Whedon's Astonishing X-Men. In their first adventure, he encounters Dr. Kavita Rao, who has developed a cure for mutation as Carl Maddox had once attempted. Hank is tempted to take the cure, but is horrified when he learns that Colossus, actually alive, don't worry about it, is being used as a test subject. Psylocke also comes back from the dead around this time, which resolves Hank's survivor's guilt. After the 2005 company-wide event House of M leads to the decimation, in which nearly all mutants on Earth are depowered, Hank has his new project, reversing the decimation and restoring mutant kind. He takes to this in much the same way as he took to the legacy virus problem, and lurks in the background of the various X-books taking notes. 
In his scientific quest, Hank once again makes moral compromises, consulting geneticist supervillains. He even ends up working for a time in collaboration with Dark Beast. Eventually, he forms a collective called X-Club to work on the problem with other leading scientists. Around this time, Hank starts dating Abigail Brand, director of the outer space shield counterpart, S.W.O.R.D. Brand appears to be a normal human, apart from her naturally green hair, but is actually half-human mutant and half-alien. She notes that her alien father has blue fur, so Hank's appearance doesn't bother her. In the 2008 company-wide event Secret Invasion, Hank realizes that the invading alien Skrulls can be infected with the legacy virus, and suggests this to Cyclops, who does it. He then guilt-trips Cyclops for doing it. This will become a theme. Not long afterward, Hank learns about Cyclops' secret Black Ops wetwork squad, X-Force, and is absolutely furious that Scott has abandoned the X-Men's general policy of trying not to kill their enemies. He then makes some time travel machines for Cyclops, and guilt trips Cyclops for having X-Force use the time travel machines. Hank and Scott's relationship continues to deteriorate, especially after Hank is kidnapped and nearly killed by Dark Beast, and later learns Scott waited a long time to rescue him despite knowing his location. After Scott allows Magneto to join the X-Men, Hank snaps and quits the team. He joins up with S.W.O.R.D. and has some adventures with his girlfriend Abigail Brand. He does return to Utopia, the X-Men's new base of operations, in the 2010 franchise-wide event Second Coming, so that he can attend Nightcrawler's funeral. At the funeral, he tells Cyclops that Nightcrawler dying is all his fault. After the 2011 event Schism, in which Wolverine leads a number of mutants to break away from Utopia after a conflict with Cyclops, Beast quickly joins up with Wolverine's side of the breakup at the new Jean Grey School for Higher Learning. At one point, Kitty Pride gets impregnated by a swarm of microscopic brood aliens, and Hank shrinks himself down and enters her bloodstream to kill them. Don't worry about it. In the 2012 event Avengers vs. X-Men, in which the Avengers and the X-Men disagree over how to handle the return of the Phoenix Force, Hank sides with the Avengers. He eventually defects to the X-Men, and then defects back to the Avengers again. Make up your mind, Hank! On the upside, the whole situation with the Phoenix restarts the process of mutant births, ending the long-term problem of the decimation, though this doesn't restore the mutants who have been depowered. But Hank is devastated in the event's climax when Cyclops, possessed by the Phoenix, murders Professor Xavier. Shortly thereafter, he learns that Xavier was part of a secret super-super group called the Illuminati, and chose Hank to be his successor in the event of his death. As part of the Illuminati, Hank learns about the phenomenon of incursions. Something in the multiverse has been thrown off balance, and alternate realities are now colliding, sometimes causing the destruction of both universes. Hank's own mutation, meanwhile, destabilizes again, and Hank believes this time he will not survive whatever transformation is coming. He's also upset because Cyclops, freed from the influence of the Phoenix, has escaped from prison and launched a revolutionary mutant liberation movement. Viewing Scott's new Magneto-influenced outlook as terrorism, in the all-new X-Men era by Brian Michael Bendis, Hank decides to take drastic measures. Traveling back in time, Hank approaches the 60s X-Men, including himself, as teenagers. He tells them about the future and convinces them to travel to his present with him, in an attempt to avert his own timeline before he dies. Shortly after the Teenage X-Men arrive in their future, Hank's unstable mutation nearly kills him. His past self manages to figure out the problem, which stems from the experimental formula Hank used on himself so long ago. The serum is corrected, and Hank transforms back into a form more like his original blue-furred one, losing the cat-like features brought on by his secondary mutation. He then tries to return the time-traveling teen X-Men back to the past, but they argue for the right to stay and learn more. Teen Scott is outraged when he discovers Hank has misled them about the way Xavier died, neglecting to tell them adult Scott was under the influence of the Phoenix Force when he killed their mentor. 
When it's revealed that the timeline has been disrupted and the teen X-Men can apparently no longer be returned to their time, Hank wonders if he may have made a mistake. One night, he is visited by Uatu the Watcher, the impartial being who observes all things in the Marvel Universe. Uatu is disgusted by Hank and informs him that his actions in disrupting the timeline have caused countless potential realities to be erased, dooming the people within them to non-existence. In the 2015 event Black Vortex by Sam Humphreys, Hank seizes the power of the titular Black Vortex, a cosmic artifact. With his intelligence enhanced to its highest possible level, Hank becomes entirely megalomaniacal, believing no one else is capable of his understanding. He creates a map of the space-time continuum to figure out how to stop the incursion phenomenon, but discovers that his own tampering with the timeline has made the problem significantly worse. Shocked by this, he flees, eventually choosing to give up the power of the Vortex. Despite his own analysis and the harsh words of the Watcher, Hank refuses to accept that he's worsening the multiversal crisis with his attempts to help. When the X-Men hold an intervention to try to make him stop messing with reality, Hank quits the team. Eventually, the multiverse collapses, and while it's restored in the end of the company-wide event Secret Wars by Jonathan Hickman, it's no thanks to Hank. Eventually, the time-traveling teen original X-Men are returned to the past, but not before teen Hank has sold his soul to an alternate reality version of Madeline Pryor and become a demonic sorcerer. Don't worry about it, but it's kind of fun. Then comes Inhumans vs. X-Men, where Hank sides with the Inhumans. Of course. In the 2019 soft reboot Dawn of X, Beast moves to the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. He is placed in charge of the new iteration of X-Force, which now explicitly functions as Krakoa's equivalent to the CIA. Confident in his own judgment, despite all his failures to date, Hank makes cavalier decisions about human lives, always finding a way to justify himself. After his actions lead to the genocide of the entire population of the Central American nation of Terra Verde, he goes fully into denial, deciding his intellect and good intentions still make him righteous. Whatever's coming next, it seems like the true Dark Beast may have been the one we've known all along. X-Men! X-Men! I think it's absolutely true that X-Force as a guerrilla black ops thing launched by an oppressed minority that has been literally decimated and actually, decimation is not really even a description of what's been done because yeah. it's way worse than that. There's only about 200 of them left. Feels very different from, as you note, a nation state's security apparatus. Not only are we talking about state power versus the power of a resistance force, but we have to talk about what kind of state power we mean. Because let's look at what you know, Krakoa has at its disposal, it has the Marauders. And what's the function of the Marauders? We got two things here, one of which I think we can talk about in a second, but we've got the mechanism of its international drug trade. Yeah, I mean, that's the other CIA, right? Like the other mutant CIA is the Marauders in that it's managing the black market on the drug trade. Yeah. The other function that the Marauders have uh, is mutant rescue. Yes. Helping mutants make Aaliyah, one might say. Yes. Man, we are really going to get into <laughs> to Israel in a moment. We'll do it in a moment. And then you have the kind of leadership that Apocalypse Xavier and Magneto exhibit in X-Men 4. Mm -hmm. Love that issue. I, I think possibly one of... like One of the greatest X-Men issues of all time, yeah. Like, we're talking... You know, uncanny 137. Levels, uh, yeah. You know, the silent Morrison-Quitely issue with Gene and Emma. Yeah. Like, this is 
you know, 201 where Storm beats Cyclops with no powers, like all time fucking great. It's up there. It's a top 10 all timer for me, for sure. Yeah. So that is also a demonstration of the way Krakoa's diplomacy will operate, both politically and importantly, economically, Mm -hmm. as Magneto lays out and by choice of the venue for delivering this geopolitical statement, uh, not at Turtle Bay for the United Nations, but at the fucking World Economic Forum, the real seat of global power. Yeah. And then you've got X-Force and, of course, the other aspect of the Marauders. We are talking about, by virtue of it, versus the other elements of state power, which are both, you know, more defensive on one hand and more cooperative on the other hand, or at least collaborative or competitive uh, when we're talking about you know, what they offer the world in terms of uh, these new miracle, you know, drugs and cures and so forth. What then X-Force becomes is a demonstration that mutant power will be applied globally for an increasingly expansive definition of state interests. Yes. And that will, I think, define Krakoa. Marauders and X-Force really are where the political stakes of the Krakoa idea are meted out to the reader. I've said this before a couple times, and I alluded to it a moment ago, but one of the things that's most interesting to me about Krakoa and the transition that we're talking about between a resistance force and a state power apparatus is that Krakoa is a minority seat of power for a minority group that has never had a nation state. And House of X opens in Jerusalem with Magneto essentially showing off Krakoa to the Israeli government. And there's a couple different ways that you can read that. The thing about Magneto that is to me essential to his character is that as Claremont tells it, this is very overt in Claremont's conception of the character. He's based on Menachem Begin. He is this far-right Zionist who, over the course of the 80s stuff, adopts a somewhat moderate form of Zionism and Xavier Claremont patterned after David Ben-Gurion. Mm-hmm. And as Jay Edidin pointed out in our episode, the Israel metaphors in X-Men, given that they are written by American Jewish writers like Claremont, are usually less about the actual Israel and more about American Jewry's relationship to Zionism or to the conception of needing a nation state. Yes. I'm interested in your take because you are a leftist Jewish national security reporter. So this is obviously something that you do a lot of work on. I read Magneto in that sequence in House of X is essentially saying to Israel, here's how you do it. I did it. Right. And setting up Krakoa as a contrast to Israel, which I think is extremely provocative, but clearly is something they're leaning into. And, you know, as someone who is more of a leftist, who has a lot of issues with Zionism as a political philosophy, I think that the idea with Krakoa of how can we create a minority nation state that isn't oppressing other people is part of the project of it. And I think that what makes X-Force interesting is it's calling into question whether that premise is inherently silly, whether it's possible at all to have a nation state that doesn't oppress other people. Because what happens in Tierra Verde is a war crime in a war that no one has declared. 
a lot there. A lot there. Sorry. Go ahead. Take it away. First, I think it's an important point, and this conversation can get very Jewish very fast. Yeah, which I'm cool with. Okay. So <laughs> I I see Jay in yours point about viewing the Claremont Israel analogy stuff as as not really being about Israel so much as what Israel represents through the prism of American Jews like us. Yeah. And that's really important here because I am not certain that the intentionalities here with the actually existing Israel and the Krakoa that we're seeing is there. Right. I think Zionists, particularly Americans, you know, the ones that aren't open fascists. Right. Want very badly in their art that works as a parallel to Israel or brings up that analogy, a kind of immaculate conception, as un-Jewish a concept as that is. Right. A foundation without sin. Yeah. Exactly. Like, finally, we have the homeland for us as an exiled people that doesn't involve colonizing and destroying another culture and oppressing an entire other nation in perpetuity and doing so from the perspective of righteous victimhood. Right. And so, as you're saying, I think a lot of art that makes the illusion just omits the reality of what the foundation of a state entails in the real yes. world and what it certainly entailed in that case. And what I have such a hard time with in accepting the Krakoa-Israel analogy is that I think it is fundamentally anti-Palestinian to have any artwork that deems to make that analogy without acknowledging the destruction of Palestine, mm -hmm. without acknowledging the, the continuing oppression of Palestine. And so I hope that wasn't what the current X team was kind of accidentally playing with. Because unless they were going to a place that was already populated. Right. This, this analogy just fundamentally doesn't work. Well, but that's sort of what I'm saying is I don't think that we're meant to associate. I mean, I think we're undeniably supposed to ask the question because House of X opens in Jerusalem. The question is posed, yes. right? What I think, and I would be interested to know if there are any Jewish people in the X office right now. I actually don't know. Well, this is why I'm not so certain this was so intentionally done. I think the Jerusalem thing is pretty clear, but I don't think that we're supposed to view Krakoa as a metaphor for Israel. I think the reason that that is put out there in the first issue is because the comparison is going to be made, right? Mm -hmm. It's a nation state being formed by an oppressed minority that has lived in exile for centuries, essentially. You have to either tackle it or not tackle it because people are going to read the Israel thing into it regardless. And so I think that engaging directly with Israel in that first issue underlines the fact that Krakoa is a state that is not built on the displacement of another people. But if you don't explicitly say that anywhere in the text, I agree that it's like King Solomon cutting the baby. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can't really have it both ways. That's why I would like an issue where Kate Pride has a talking to with Sabra. I, I would like to say, uh, if anyone's interested, I have a treatment for a sovereign mini series. <laughs> it's four characters over four issues. You see where I'm going with this? Yeah, I do. Sabra, Kitty. Magneto and Ben Grimm. Yeah, that's a good set of four. And and we will see what these characters have to say about the actual 
Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I think that if we're going to go there, we have to go there. And I think Sabra, because she is a mutant who sold out the mutants to get intel for the Mossad, is a good vehicle. Because I think that one of the things that's most interesting that you can do with Krakoa right now is explore the tension in the characters who are nationalist characters in addition to being mutants, like Sabra, like Sunfire, those characters. I think that what they're doing with Betsy and Brian on that score has been interesting. And I would love to see Kate explain the differences between Krakoa and Israel. But I am not sure that anyone wants to step in that because it would obviously be one of those stories that would make national news. I do think that, like you said, if you're going to make a story that is a, a fictional story about a minority group nation state, this is sort of a context that is going to exist no matter what. And you do need to acknowledge the reality of the oppression of the Palestinian people. So I had read the Hoxpox Jerusalem opening, I think, differently than you did. There's definitely different ways to read it. I did not get from that. I will go back and read it. I'm very open to your interpretation. It gave me a little bit of a feeling of dread about what turned out to be like a just, you know, tremendous status quo. Mm -hmm. That what Magneto was saying there was what we are doing is no less legitimate than the creation of the state of Israel that you acknowledge is legitimate. And I thought took the legitimacy of the state of Israel for granted in that case by having it be Magneto who says it. Well, Magneto is a Zionist. So Magneto, of course, would completely have no problem with the foundation of Israel or any of that. Right. But that's also why I didn't get from there that it was Magneto telling Israel, here's how you do it right. I don't get the sense. No, I get what you're saying. That Magneto thinks Israel is doing it wrong. See, that's where I'm not sure, because I think that Magneto... I mean, here's the problem. A lot of it depends on who's writing Magneto. Totally. He is a little bit of a cipher. I read it that way because, again, the 80s trajectory of Magneto is to the left, or at least to the center. You know what I'm saying? They talk a lot about Genosha Mm -hmm. and how Genosha failed. Now, Genosha is not an Israel metaphor. Genosha is a South Africa metaphor, right? So it's a little bit different. But they talk about how Genosha as a mutant state failed. They talk about how Utopia failed. And to me, that scene in Jerusalem is Magneto asserting, essentially, that Israel is a state that everyone has chosen to recognize for the most part that all the superpowers have chosen to recognize. The superpowers. That's the important point there. Correct. Correct. But is, like Genosha and like Utopia, just an attempt at this that isn't what Krakoa is? And that is how I read it. But that is perhaps a charitable reading on my part. I think that a lot of what we're going to have to figure out as this goes on, because it's hard to say about something as it's being written, is like, what is X-Force's take on the CIA? What is the whole Krakoan era's take on minority nation states? How does the X-Office currently feel about Israel? Are we going to find out? Like, we have to make these interpretations ourselves. That's how I read it. It is ambiguous, though. Like, I could completely be making that up because I want it to be a critique. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I'll definitely go back and reread it with that in mind. My interpretation of the difference between Genosha, Utopia, and Krakoa, and I took this to be kind of the point of what Magneto is saying in that instance, if there is 
a critique of Israel to be made by Magneto here, let's say for you know sake of argument there was, it was that the difference between how we've done this before and what we're doing now is we're declaring ourselves a global superpower. Mm. We are not going to be a nation that withdraws and wishes to be left alone or is going to tend to its own We're not going to be isolationist. We're going to be a player. You don't have to go as far as isolationist. You just have to go as far as non-interventionist. Fair, fair. Genosha was not interventionist. That's correct, yeah. Yeah, that like we have nevertheless an interest and this is where it does kind of get inescapably Israeli with the exception being that when, you know, mutant lives anywhere are in danger, we reserve the right to act in their interests. Correct. And any mutant is welcome to make Aaliyah and come to Krakoa. Exactly. That, like, you have automatic access and citizenship. You have a right of not return. Yes, a right of return. That's the thing that I do think is key. Yes. Now, Apocalypse later reveals that Krakoa was this thriving mutant land once long ago, but it's not the mutant homeland. It's not a right of return, but the parallel is undeniable, right? Yeah. You can come here. We're setting this up. And I do think that it is reminiscent of early forms of Zionism that argued Zionism didn't have to involve establishing a state in the Holy Land. Yes, indeed. And that form of Zionism was completely steamrolled by the dominant form very quickly. Yes. The thing with Krakoa is it's like the land is alive, asks you to come, and no one lives there. It creates a very different context, obviously, but it is a context that isn't reality. And so I agree with you that you kind of do need to engage with reality if you're going to traffic in the metaphor. That's right. The metaphor compels a certain obligation. I have a lot of faith in this creative team to get there. Me too. I just am interested to see where it all goes. Yeah. And that's a critique that I think is valid. I think the fact that the Israel stuff hasn't been explicitly tackled is a valid critique. Right. So now you've got what it is that makes X-Force as an instrument of state power so centrally important to resolving for Krakoa because this thing is an atrocity in in multiple ways. It's an atrocity for existing period. It's not an idea that ought to have occurred without questioning as, as, you know, really only Mystique is the one, ironically, uh, who questions it when the Quiet Council sets it up. Well, I think that makes sense because she was Freedom Force. She knows how this can go. She knows, yeah. But also, I mean... She also worked for the Mossad. Yes. As Amichai Benvenisti, she was a Mossad operative. As Lini Sauber, she was a German operative in the Cold War. She's done all of this stuff before. And outside of that, the absolute wrong person to have in charge of this thing is Correct. Beast. Not just yeah. for his own moral slipshoddiness, but for who he has always been in the constellation of the X-Men. And, and here's where I think, like, the relevant character history makes a lot of sense. The X-Men at its worst presents uh, a very unfortunate respectability politics. Yes. Xavier is an assimilationist, essentially. And Hank is really into that. Hank is his prime student. In that, absolutely. Yes, it's it's not really Scott, because Scott gets to stay a military leader. Right. What Xavier's message really is, particularly when it's sort of, you know, given at its worst, is not about how mutants, you know, build community with one another. It's how mutants ought to act in the outside world. Right. At the worst parts of what Xavier is. And it's it's Hank who goes out and really does that. And whether it's with the Avengers or with his general, you know, for a very long time between the end of the first X-Men run 
until X-Factor. He just doesn't fuck with mutants. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's always been really interesting to me about Hank is that he, and it's never made that textual, but it's always there. He is the self-hating mutant. I mean, he just is. Yes. They make a way for him to talk about it by having him further transform into more of a beast. And he can talk about how, oh, I hate what my appearance has become or whatever. But what he really hates is being a mutant. Yeah. In Giant Size Number 1, when they are flying out to Krakoa, when you see the 60s X-Men in the flashback flying out, Gene is like, mm, I wish Hank was here. And Scott's like, Hank graduated from the X-Men. Clearly, we don't rate to him anymore. Right. And for a long time, they don't really. He's an Avenger, then he's a Defender. He shows up as a guest star a couple times. There's that adventure in Antarctica where he and Gene yeah. get separated from the rest of the team and they all think the X-Men died. Ah, but again, let's, let's just interject here for a moment. Why does he do that? As you can see from the cover, where it's Beast with his hand on a morning Xavier... He, come, he will do anything for Professor X. Mm -hmm. The thing that he doesn't really do for Professor X is stay within the mutant community. He's sort of too true to that particular aspect of Xavier's assimilationism. Yeah, and I mean, I have, I have a sort of general policy that I try not to address in Humans vs. X-Men or any of the surrounding stories on this podcast. Except you do nearly every episode, Connor. Well, because you can't avoid it. <laughs> but I try to give most people a pass on what they did in that period because I think that so much of that was just editorially fraught. Yeah. And if I'm going to say, we're just going to ignore what Emma did in that story, then I have to kind of give other people a pass. But the one that is so in character and so perfect is it's Hank nice. siding with the Inhumans. Yes. That is insane. He literally is like, we must cede the planet to the Inhumans. Mutant kind must leave Earth. And it's like, are you kidding it. me? <laughs> Get the fuck out of here. Always locating the problem you know, with the mutants. Yes. The body horror. Yeah. Really demonstrates how much shame Hank feels toward himself to the point where he's always kind of tormented by how he doesn't look like whatever it is he believes himself to look like. Do you remember um, in the Simonson X Factor, one of the twists they do... The Flowers for Algernon plot line that he has Yeah, there? like they revert him to human form, but he loses his mind. The more he uses his mutant power, the more he loses his intellect and becomes a beast. That's right. It's like still Alice or one of those where it's like the horror is that the genius is losing his mental faculties. But, you know, more to the point, what is killing his mental faculties? The is fact being that a mutant. Is mutant. Right. Yeah. So, like, he experiences mutant kind only through the prism of torment I don't really go back to the weed and run. You and I agree. Yeah, I'm not a I'm not a fan. But isn't he considering like taking the the quote unquote cure? Kavita Rouse cure, yeah. Yeah. And he keeps a sample of it just, you know, for study that later right. turns up and causes problems. One of the greatest lines in the Morrison New X-Men is Beast unburdening himself to Gene about how he feels and like just, you know, mournfully saying, you knew me when I could play the guitar. Mm -hmm. That's just such a such an evocative line. There's so much pain in that. And you really don't want this guy in particular to be your X-Force. He, he doesn't put it to me this way. Do you buy outside from the devotion of Beast to Xavier 
that he would be on Krakoa at all. Because I don't. No. That's actually my big thing with Hank. It's quite the about face for him to go from mutants must abandon the earth and the inhumans should win to, yes, I love Krakoa. Krakoa is the best. And now I am in charge of Krakoa's super cop apparatus. That is interesting to me as a character shift. I'm not saying that it's bad or that it doesn't make sense, but it is something that bears analysis, right? Mm -hmm. Throughout his relationship with the X-Men, even when he's on the X-Men, Hank is rarely siding with the X-Men. Correct. He is very often presenting a conception of mutant kind through what it must mean for its coexistence with the rest of humanity. Mm -hmm. And now suddenly, in this context, Hank is seated possibly the most or certainly among the most institutionally significant roles on Krakoa, one of the absolute most politically powerful roles on Krakoa. And he's doing it to nearly unilaterally, in secret, without consent, and without diplomacy, forge a bloody path towards superpower status for Krakoa when that status is already baked in by what Krakoa's economic Krakoa already has social the economic impact and the fact that almost everyone on it has a superhuman power that makes them already a powerful being. That's right. Yes. And so it's at that point when you have to ask, what is X-Force for? Right. And the answer that we're starting to get, or at least an available answer, is that Krakoa is a Chekhov's gun aimed at the rest of mutant kind. You can do that, you know, by nature of what X-Force is. You can do that by the nature of, of who Hank McCoy is. But either path right now can kind of open up that vista. And it's important to recognize that, you know, once security apparatuses like these, covert ones, ones that reset the relationship between other forces in the world on the terms that the power wielding them seeks to install, then you're inevitably going to get from the cadre that does that and is entrusted to it, its own institutional interests and complications about its relationship with the the rest of the society, particularly in nations without a tradition or a, a durability of the rule of law, they can reset the relationship between the state and the citizenry. Mm-hmm. And this is a rather major theme of my book and one of the ways in which we see the post 9-11 period leading very naturally to the Trump era. I believe Trump is a lagging indicator of the forces released by the war on terror. Well, you know, we're debating so much throughout the whole Trump administration about DHS and ICE. And of course, DHS and ICE only exist because of the 9-11 response under the Bush administration. Those are new agencies. These are new institutions. Right. And but they're institutions that now in the discourse, people act like you can't get rid of that. It's one of our institutions, but it's only been an institution for less than 20 years. And one of the most lawless of institutions of the last 20 years. Crossing the border is not a criminal offense. 
No. Being in this country illegally is a civil offense. That is what quote unquote illegal means, as disgusting as it is to even use that term to apply to a human being. In its legal definitions, it is not a criminal act. And the entire premise of ICE is that it is treated as such. Exactly. It's to police it as though it is criminal. Exactly. It, it, it creates the, and perpetuates the problem, quote unquote, that institutionally it is set up to solve. And that's going to be X-Force. Yes. And I think that the interesting thing about X-Force is looking at the team makeup of it, because it makes absolute sense that if you're going to create something like this and you're Xavier, that you put Hank in charge of it. Because here's the thing about Hank. Hank thought that Scott's X-Force was evil. But if Hank is doing it, it can't be evil. That's what Hank has proven time and time again. And Hank is always hearkening back to the 60s. It's a sliding time scale, but I mean to the 60s publication period. He wants to go back to the time when he was a normal-looking guy with big hands and feet. He wants to go back to the time when the primary concern of the X-Men under Lee and Kirby and the other writers in that initial run was blending in, was being part of Westchester, New York, where I live, where blending in is a thing that a lot of people are concerned with. That is the story of the 60s X-Men. It's not until Claremont reinvents the book in the 70s that the idea of mutants being a cultural identity and being something that is a minority group that's worth safeguarding and not assimilating completely emerges at all. I mean, that's just not present in the 60s stories. And Hank is always going back to that place of the original X-Men in that mansion, Warren putting his wings in a harness and all of them hiding. You know, he's always about doing the mutant outreach, as you've said, and and how we can be participants in civil society and how we can not embarrass ourselves. And I think that it makes complete sense because the ultimate realization of him constantly going back to the well there of that 60s X-Men mindset is in the Bendis run when he literally pulls the teenage versions of the original X-Men forward in time because he's like, Scott's become a radical and I need to remind him of the neoliberal assimilationism that was Xavier's dream. So let me bring the teens to the future to shame him. And as that story goes on, and it becomes clear that by doing that, Hank not only destroyed part of the time stream in an irrevocable way, but has destroyed entire alternate realities, has caused countless deaths, and has caused countless people to cease to exist, never to have existed. He still refuses to accept that any of it could have been wrong to do in the first place. There is that moment where Uatu the Watcher says to him, you disgust me. (laughs) The Watcher has seen a lot of really terrible people do shit. Did the Watcher ever, like, call a meeting with Hitler to be like, you disgust me? (laughs) It's a big deal. And Hank's arrogance leads to the destruction of the entire multiverse. They managed to put it back together in Secret Wars, but he did it. No, I I would just say that, you know, I cover the intelligence agencies for a living, and I've been doing this for nearly you know, 20 years at this point, Mm -hmm. the most salient comparison 
between Hank McCoy and the intelligence agencies. The aspect by which, like, it really makes sense is this, like, astonishing sense of blamelessness on his part. Right, yeah. And most importantly, lack of accountability for any of this at all. This is how we got a literal torturer as the head of the CIA right now. Right now. In that sense, it makes sense if this is what Krakoa is going to be, to have Hank McCoy as director of X-Force. In that sense, if they really want to go there. Everything Hank has done, particularly in the last, I guess, you know, 15 years or so. About 15 years. Yeah, yeah, 15 years or so of his on-panel character decisions beyond the characterological type and ideological affiliations that Hank has had from Jump is that everything he does is a hubristic disaster that brings Mm -hmm. a ton of pain. Untold suffering to everyone around him, including people he's never met. Yeah, exactly. The entire universe, the multiverse. That like a lib, he will occasionally beat himself up for before, you know, moving forward to the next one. Like, oh, well, you can't make an omelet without breaking a couple eggs. That's sort of his attitude. And now you see it. Um, in the text pages of X-Force that, you know, are his yeah. diary. Where he's like, well, fuck that up. It was a mistake to have done this Terravarian genocide. Yeah, I genocided this entire country. Oops. But you know what? It happens. And no one is asking, not even Gene. I feel like this was a, a really awful Gene moment that is, isn't really getting the appreciation that it, it might call for. I love how Percy's writing Gene, but I have a dark view of Gene, though. <laughs> No, okay, so, like, there's that scene in, and I, I want to say, X-Force 10, after they, they wrap up, you know, the Terra Verdean plot, where Hank has now just, and we only really, like, get the full readout of this on the text page, but explicitly on the text page, it says that Hank McCoy is responsible for the destruction of this entire culture, while he goes around saying, like, it was one man's life against, you know, all of this. Hank has done this not out of necessity for the lives of mutants. He has done this to stop an economic threat to Krakoa. This is an act of economic sabotage that becomes genocide. It is the most, like, fucking neoliberal thing that I can imagine the X-Men doing. And they said it in Central America for a reason, right? I mean, again, if we're doing a CIA parallel, yeah. Yeah. And Jean comes to yell at Hank. She doesn't come to arrest Hank. Right. She she doesn't come to bring him before the quiet council and say, explain what you did and answer for it. She doesn't come to tell Hank, you have to fucking resign. She doesn't come to tell Hank, X-Force cannot exist. She doesn't come to deal with the consequences of a fucking genocide in a country that's shaped inevitably, and I guess here is another unavoidable Israel parallel, in the shadow of Holocaust. Right. Gene doesn't do any of that. Gene, who knows what it is like to cause a genocide. Well, that's what I was about to say is Gene, of course, ate a whole galaxy once. No matter how much she wants to tell you, it wasn't her. And she basically comes to tell one of the oldest friends she has, like, cut that shit out. The reason why it's not Scott in charge of X-Force and it's not Warren in charge of X-Force, if you're going to the oldest... Mm -hmm people in Xavier's world, 
it's Hank with Gene as his conscience. And the thing about Gene is that Gene has never been anyone's conscience. Never. If Hank is Xavier's star pupil in the sense of absorbing Xavier's assimilationist neoliberal conception of how the minority should behave, Gene, as I've said on this podcast before, is Xavier's star pupil in the sense of internalizing his morality. Yes. And so when Gene objects to what Hank is doing... I think one of the best Jean moments, certainly since she came back, and I, I do love the way Percy's writing her next force, is when she says, don't fucking condescend to me, Hank. Because it's not the morals of what Hank is doing that bother Jean particularly. Clearly not. Because Jean is, much like Hank, extremely good at justifying her decisions. That has always been something she's very good at. She believes herself to be righteous. When she has the power of the phoenix behind her, she believes herself to be righteous on a cosmic level. The phoenix burns through lies, Emma Frost. I mean, that is her thing. And so I think that it is very telling that Xavier puts Hank in charge of this, has Jean there to keep an eye on him, and then sends Tessa who is also, you know, this is a retcon, but the idea that Tessa was always his mole in the Hellfire Club, that Tessa is one of his first students. And so Sage is, first of all, someone whose way of processing the world is clinical by its nature because of the way her mind works. And then is also someone who has always been willing to do just about anything for Charles Xavier. It's a very deliberately chosen team because then you have Wolverine, who's ambivalent about Krakoa kind of generally, but is a good killing machine. Domino, who's a mercenary who's not particularly morally concerned with things. And Quentin Quire, who is Quentin Quire. It does feel to me like that's kind of the point. And I have to think that the arc that we're building toward is eventually if not Gene, someone seizing leadership from Hank because he's gone too far. And I wouldn't be surprised, you know, COVID screwed up a lot of the timing on various Mm -hmm. arcs. So Colossus has now been chilling in his internment cell for the whole of Ten of Swords. But once this event is over, I think that that will be perhaps a bridge too far for Jean. Because, listen, she didn't know anyone in Tierra Verde. It's very easy for us, and this is, if we're doing a critique of America and American intervention, it's very easy for us to look at a number like however many millions of people just died in Tierra Verde as a statistic. But Colossus is their friend. Yeah, totally. I wouldn't be surprised if that's where the worm turns. I'm not sure that this book is going to be about Hank just running amok for the next however many years. I think they're setting something up with Hank that will click into place. But I'm just guessing because I don't know, obviously. Well, what I'm going to be reading for to see is what exactly is the book's structural critique? Because you don't get that with that interaction between Hank and Gene. And I don't yet know. I don't think we yet know. We don't know yet what the ethos of the book is. Right. That's right. I don't think we know yet if we are meant to read Gene not making a structural critique of X Force and saying, like, this has to be abolished. We can't do this anymore. Like or if we're, you know, just meant to to mean that like deliberately she accepts that like 
This is a, right. This is a bit of a mistake, but we have to carry on. Is it meant to be a characterization beat that is right a negative light to cast her in, or is it just that the book isn't interested in that critique? And we'll have to see. Yeah, I don't think we have the information necessary, the context necessary. I just think that the way it pivoted in 12 with Colossus is meant to underline to the reader, again, because this is a character that we care about, that something is wrong if you didn't grok that already. Do you know what I mean? What I don't think we have the information yet to know is if the book wants to raise the question, must there be an X-Force? Right. Is the question, do we reform X-Force, or is the question, is X-Force a fundamentally just Do we have to institution? Abol- def- de- defund X-Force. Defund X-Force or reform X-Force, right? right. We don't yeah, know we yet don't know what which the one. Like, argument we- is going to be. Right. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, and I, I'd be curious to know if there will be avatars for each argument on the team, because I don't, uh, yeah. I don't really see... I don't see many abolitionists here. I see... Either reformers in Jean, you know, Jean at her most shit lib. Right. We have outright advocates of the thing unreformed in Hank. Correct. And then we have characters who are kind of not positioned to to care or make the critique. They're there to kill people. Or to bolster the apparatus, like Sage and Dr. Reyes. That's right. There's no one structurally who's in position on X-Force to either make an abolition argument or open themselves up to an outside, you know, force. Because as far as we can see from the book, X-Force is known to the Quiet Council, to perhaps other security and strike apparatuses. Yeah, I would imagine that Cyclops and Magic and Gorgon and Bishop know about it. And the Marauders clearly know about it. The Marauders know about it, obviously. But outside of that, and this is a, like a whole other problem with Krakoa, and I would love to take just a moment to go into that because this will impact both, you know, Hank specifically and X-Force a bit more generally, is what exactly is, like, the political situation of Krakoa? Like, right. we have, is it 13 or 12 on the Quiet Council? It's 12 on the Quiet Council, It's right? 12, but then you sort of, Doug is kind of 13 because he's the voice of Krakoa. I feel like Doug is like chief of staff, right? He's like Krakoa's Essentially. Chief of staff. So it's, yeah. Ch- yeah, it's 12 people and then Doug gives Krakoa's opinion and Krakoa's kind of 13, you know okay, what I'm saying? so let's say, so it's basically 13 people slash beings who, as far as we can tell, assumed power. Yeah, unelected. Unelected, just assumed power with no mechanism to change that, and right now, like, enjoy, like, just a general, you know, harmonious existence as the governing council, whatever that means internally on Krakoa, for Krakoa. Part of it is that because Krakoa internally is this sort of anarcho-communist paradise where there is no internal economy or anything like that, the day-to-day management of Krakoa is not really something that a lot of political attention has to be paid to. They really are, the Quiet Council really is concerned almost entirely Externally. with external threat. That's right. Um, which they should have called themselves the externals. Well, unfortunately that name was taken. No, no, but I mean like in the way that like the books have like brought us a new definition. Oh yeah, no, no, I get that. Like, I get that. that. I get yeah. that. Yeah. If the actual externals weren't coming back as part of the plot, which they did, I, I imagine that they Or just like inhabit that. that concept and decide we're going to, you know, reform it. Well, they... You got to read Ten of Swords. Oh, okay. <laughs> Shit. Amazing. Okay, great. <laughs> Look, Just because a... if you get to Excalibur 12, like Apocalypse sort of 
talks about Ooh. how he sees Krakoa as outmoding the externals. Oh, oh, great. Yeah, because it, it, is, it is kind of a... Krakoa is question-begging for the externals, right? Yes, like, because Apocalypse's point, and Celine agrees with him, is our whole deal was that we could always come back from death, and that's what made us special, except right. now all mutants can do that. Right. Right. Okay, so... So it's, it's good. It's good stuff. Teeny Howard's genius. I'm a little biased, but she's great. One thing we know about mutant kind from, like, the on-panel existence, starting literally with X-Men number one, is mutant kind is ideologically and politically fractious. There is factionalism everywhere. I don't believe, but I believe Hank McCoy would definitely believe, if he's on board with Krakoa, that Krakoa is, like, essentially the way Francis Fukuyama saw liberal democracy. We have reached with Krakoa the end of history. Mutant history has ended. We have now achieved on Krakoa, you know, the last X-Man. Yeah. To play with the concept. X-Men the end, one might say. While Krakoa exists politically, so far all we've gotten is unbridled acceptance of Krakoa from like the data pages on from mutant kind. Everyone's, you know, flocking to Krakoa to be a part of this new mutant society. And the only people who aren't, we're told on panel, are oppressed mutants who aren't allowed to make Aliyah. Which is another place that the Israel yeah. thing kind of falls apart because there are more Jews in America than there are in Israel. And this is the point I want to make. I don't buy that. I want to see in uh, my Dawn of X, you know, status quo, mutants who have no interest in Krakoa, mutants mm -hmm. who view Krakoa as a bad or a hostile prospect, and most importantly, from the perspective of having now everyone on Krakoa, Mutants who resist the hegemony of the X-Men. Yes. I don't believe that if you are a former member of the Mutant Liberation Front, did you not believe all this shit? I mean, and, and admittedly, these well, characters the MLF... were not ideologically developed. And Strife didn't really believe in any of it. Exactly. And like, I, I really frankly hate the fact that they're called the MLF because it is one of many ways in which comic books treat liberation movements as terrorism you know particularly they don't take the idea within the x universe seriously mm -hmm. that if you are about mutant liberation you are more than a terrorist only xavier's vision and to some degree the right-wing versions of it magneto offers when they are at their most you know mostly ideologically aligned but not exactly reluctant allyship i'm thinking of either in you know, the Bendis status quo or uh, right. Utopia or um, after but Trial that's the of thing Magneto. Is, yeah. Post Trial of Magneto, I wouldn't really call Magneto a right wing character. I mean, I think that's what Claremont does that's interesting is he shifts that character. He He's still authoritarian in some respects, but I think that his radical approach becomes a little different. I, if I, if I can. Um Yeah. What I mean by that is I view Magneto in, in the trial of Magneto, in the post-trial of Magneto era, as being the right wing of the Xavier school of thought. He is, the, he is somewhat of the, the kind of right deviationist of Xavierism. And so what you're saying is there is no leftist version of Xavierism that we get on panel, basically. Well, what I mean to say in this specific instance is like, 
if we ever get one, it's not going to be Magneto, like from what we see. No, and I think that's actually what Cyclops was supposed to be in the Bendis era to some extent. Yeah, I think so. I think he was supposed, except the trouble with it is, is that if you go in a radical mutant liberationist direction, you're going to be leaving Xavierism behind. You're going to be making a break with Xavierism. You're going to have to frankly fight the X-Men. Which Cyclops ends up having to do, yeah. Yes. But I think that one of the things about Krakoa that is so critical is that in the second issue of House of X, Moira basically blows up Xavierism completely. Yes. And we now are asked to accept, incidentally, that Xavier has always known his dream doesn't work. And that all of this has been them playing a very long chess game to get to where we are now. And where we are now is him much more in line with Magneto's point of view and with Emma's point of view, both of which are more... um, It's interesting because they don't map directly onto right wing and left wing. No, and and also, like, frankly, there are many problematic things about using that straight left right spectrum yeah that is a relic of the french revolution right magneto's authoritarian emma's libertarian they are both separatists as opposed to charles who is this assimilationist and i think that what is interesting about krakoa and where i'm interested to see them fill in some of the past with moira and charles now that we know what we know about moira Mm -hmm is how much did he believe the things he was saying? How much did he buy into Moira's way more extreme separatism than Magneto or Emma's because she has seen that humanity will always try to exterminate mutant kind no matter what anyone does and what that means for his political worldview. I don't know. I think it's interesting. I think it's the central, it, it is among the central questions along with you know, must there be an X-Force? What kind of society, what kind of political reality, what kind of political hegemony Krakoa is and is going to live under? It is the most central right. question. I keep going back to this point. The thing we know about the X-Men and the X-Line is that ideological conflict is baked into it. There are yes. many better and worse and more serious and less serious treatments throughout X-History and creative teams about ideological conflict, I never, you know, speaking for myself, who, who's a nerd about this kind of stuff, I never get quite the satisfaction that I'm looking for to just have like, you know, a 22 page debate over first X principles and then over first mutant principles, you know, complete with punching and powers and appropriate like visual metaphors. The Hickman style data pages are helping they are. with that, that vibe that you want. I am curious to see if they intended, you know, deal with it if this is intentional or not. But right now you have like a complete lack of any political question and the existence of Krakoa being treated as this kind of end of mutant history. And I want to see the ways in which that will fracture the fault lines that become the points of fracture and, you know, dealing with in some way what it means to have like the fundamental, uh, assimilationism of, of Xavierism reputed by Xavier right. and just simply accepted by all of these people who are supposedly who spent decades as his correct exactly why are they willing to accept that he's completely shifted course and I think that we're supposed to ask that and I think that 
the arc from House of X through Ten of Swords is about establishing Krakoa and making us all buy into the fact that it exists. And I think that after Ten of Swords, we're going to start seeing the cracks more heavily. Because have you read Hellions? I have not read Hellions yet. You should read Hellions. Oh, good. And I, I hope I'm not complaining about stuff that I'm being given. Or no, 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 no. It's just that there's a whole thing in Hellions about whether or not clones like Madeline Pryor count as real people on Krakoa. Oh. And the answer is, I think, meant to disturb us. So I read I read the first issue of Hellions and then it's kind of stacked up. OK, well, you should read that. It's not that many of them yet. And it's one of my favorites that they're putting out right now. I think Zeb Wells is. Oh, great. Genius. Well, then I'll, I'll love it. You ju- judging from your podcast, you and I align on a lot. It makes no sense for Hank from his character history to be part of Krakoa as the thinker that he has been. It only makes sense when viewed through the perspective of his devotion to Xavier the man. And, you know, sometimes I think you can get a lot of mileage out of both Hank specifically and the X-Men generally, if you, you know, just view them. Uh, I owe this insight uh, to my dear friend, Matt Bors, uh, the creator of The New, mm. uh, and the best, I believe, political cartoonist of his generation. I'm partial to my client, Ellie Valley and to my oh friend. I love Ellie and, and to my friend Matt Lipchansky who works with Matt Bors and and, certainly... and and who's I love your Colossus episode so much it's a fun I, one it was so I just, I just love it so much <laughs> anyway Matt once who's also you know an X-Men fanatic uh Matt Bors Bors yeah. yeah uh he had the idea that like view the X-Men you know kind of like Scientology Xavier is L. Ron Hubbard, Cyclops is Miscavige, and uh, the X-Men are the Sea Org. There is a famous piece of fan fiction from like almost 20 years ago now, if you were in the fan world at all, which I was back then, called X-Manson, like X-Mansion. Oh, wow. And it's Kitty Pride watching a documentary about the cult that Xavier was running in his school that oh, she escaped fantastic. from. Oh, that's fantastic. It's really good. Everyone's out of character because it's asking the question. It, yeah. It's positing, it, what if it was a cult? Right. But it's famous because it was one of the first sort of fan fiction stories that made a lot of people go, holy shit. Like, you know, that's... Yeah. It's it's good. It tilts the concept 90 degrees. Correct. And I haven't read it in like a decade, but it, I remember it throwing me for a real loop. I'll have to read that, especially because I have kind of an idea for for a series that touches on that uh concept so uh cool yeah that one and shadow over westchester are the two dark x-men fanfics that i always remember it only kind of makes sense you know to view hank doing this through a kind of like cult-like devotion and i don't know if that's going to be a theme that they pick up on because xavier kind of establishes you know the need for x-force for his own personal vengeance after being assassinated Mm-hmm. Like I mean, and they call like they they talk about him as as the king. I think the other way to view Hank's participation here is something that I think has been done with Hank, as we said over the last fifteen years, which is that Hank has sort of become the Reed Richards of the X universe. Yeah, in that he's obsessed with finding answers to his hypotheses. He's obsessed with gathering scientific knowledge, and the rest of it sort of falls by the wayside. So we talked about this beforehand. 
I am making an executive decision that I am going to kill the Housewives game, except for episodes where I think it will be funny. So we're just not going to do that every single episode because I think that it is sometimes. Here's the thing about Beast. Beast would never be on The Real Housewives. Beast isn't fun that way. He's just not. And I wrote down so many variations on Oh My Stars and Garters and tried to come up with some kind of pun. And nothing was really hitting. Then I was like, they say music soothes the savage beast, but I prefer the opera. And then I was like, Connor, the opera is music. Like, I couldn't come up with a, you know. So my point is, I'm not going to. Did you try? I tried. Because I tried to make something work basically around, like, Oh, my stars in garters, like using garters to torture someone, like shit like that. I had this thought process where I was like, garters, like at a wedding, you throw the garter, something blue. And then I was mm. like, no, this isn't coming together. But I, I don't know. It was just so instead of that, I'm going to skip ahead to reader questions because we have a lot of reader questions this week and I have tried to curate them. So I'm sorry if you don't get yours read, but thank you all for writing in. We've been talking a lot about sort of the general political atmosphere of Krakoa, which I think is good and is why I had you on the show, frankly, because I wanted to dig into that with an expert. But also, Hank is sort of the face of an important aspect of that right now. So it makes sense. But I would like to also get into the character himself specifically. Christopher Beekler writes, I've generally been a fan of Hank McCoy since I started collecting as a kid in the 80s, right at the beginning of Inferno. I hate what they've done to him starting around the Bendis run, where he's moved halfway to being Dark Beast, obsessed with his own genius and completely bereft of any morals. Dark Beast was great as a look what Hank McCoy could have been character in AOA, but the whole point is that Hank is not that person because of the influence of the X-Men. That said, at least the current X-Force run is doing something interesting with him and possibly setting him up for a hard fall. So that's something, but he's still gross. I'm curious what you and your guests think could be done to tweak him back toward being more likable and fun, or if that's even a good idea. Would it be boring for him to go back to being a more likable genius? So I have a lot of sympathy for Beast fans, because if you're a fan of the character as like sort of the playful, quippy bouncing beast who was on the Avengers that character's dead and gone and has been now for a long time um at this point I think it would not make sense to you'd have to do so much work ignoring it's like I said about Inhumans versus X-Men With Emma Frost, it's pretty easy to disregard that one story because she's very out of character in it. I think most people feel, critics and fans alike. And it seems clear to me that the writers right now are sort of just pretending for her that that story didn't happen. But Hank has been moving in this direction for a really long time. And one could argue that it's the trajectory he's been on since the 70s, since the 80s. I agree with you that what really happened to this character more than anything else is that Dark Beast was such a hit in AOA to the point where AOA ended and Dark Beast managed to jump into our timeline and be a major antagonist for the X-Men on and off. So I think that in the time since the mid-90s when that was posed as a question, like, could Hank be this person? There has been a fascination among writers with exploring how he could become that person 
in 616 or 616. I know it's 616. <laughs> how he could become that person on Earth 616. And I think that that's the direction they're more interested in going. And personally, it's the direction I'm more interested in seeing the character go at this point because I don't think you can undo all of the stuff Bendis did to that character, at least not cleanly. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that it would be a cop out uh, to sort of return Hank, uh, particularly after he's committed genocide, to a position of innocence. Yeah, it would feel very Gene's been healing in a cocoon at the bottom of Jamaica Bay to me, which is and, never my you know, favorite way. And to go. it wasn't, and it, I think you say this on a previous episode, it takes until Morrison for them to correct like the idea that it wasn't really Jean. Right, because Morrison's like, no, it might not have been her physical body, but in every respect that matters, it was her personality, her memories, like it's Jean. And I think the point of Dark Beast, as you know, as everyone is mentioning, is to show that like this is part of Hank McCoy already. Like it it makes a lot of characterological sense to show that there is a trajectory that however much, you know, mediated through the Age of Apocalypse, this kind of, like, technocratic assimilationist figure could become ultimately a genocide dare. And I think that is a frankly radical critique, uh, and I hope they, like, they embrace it. I, I hope they, they really do bring it out, because, you know, now that you mention this, it occurs to me that Hickman just wrote a tremendously good Reed Richards I don't know if you read that. I didn't read most of it, but I've read here or there. I'm just not a Fantastic Four person, frankly, most of the time. I'm trying to go back and read all of Hickman's stuff specifically because I think that a lot of that will factor in to some extent in what's going on in the X line going forward. Because much like Claremont back in the day, he's really into plant and payoff. So things he's planted in old runs of his, I imagine, will bear fruit in this X-Men run. Yeah, I mean, he does that, like, you know, years and years later. You know, his, yeah. his like, Secret Wars is impossible without his Fantastic Four. Listen, I read just Secret Wars without having read his Fantastic oh, Four, and I gotta tell you. It's amazing. Without that context, it's like, what is going? But I, I loved Secret Wars. I thought it was great. I thought it was just simply exquisite. But, yeah, to, you can't really go back and show Hank, you know, not having done this stuff and... I hope as a matter of deliberate critique, because we get that somewhat in Hickman's Fantastic Four. And that's the reason why I bring up, you know, the parallel with Beast once he raised, you know, him being the X-Men's Reed Richards, that particularly as it will matter for the geopolitics of the Marvel Universe, but specifically what the political and moral legacy of Krakoa is, address this mm-hmm. directly with Beast. It, it, it really deserves to have, you know, the question of whether the seeds of all of this atrocity without a broader moral commitment and robust ideological critique is found in that kind of technocracy, that it yields mm-hmm. this atrocity once kind of unleashed as basically an indictment of neoliberalism. Yeah, and I think that the AOA version of Hank underlines what you said about his devotion to Xavier, because basically what Dark Beast reveals is that Hank is really game to join a cult. That's right. He's ideologically fungible. He'll he'll do this he for is, Apocalypse yeah. as he will for Xavier. Yeah, because if you convince him 
or rather if he convinces himself that what he's doing is important for scientific progress, the moral stuff really falls away for him. It just does. And I think that that has been core to the character since AOA was such a hit. And I think that that is what Bendis was playing with, with the incursions and with the time traveling 05 and everything else. And I think that that is what we're now seeing manifest. We have two sort of other questions in this vein. Adam Farrar writes, who has caused more harm at this point? 616's Hank or the AOA's Dark Beast? Could Krakoa resurrect Dark Beast if they wanted to? Did Cerebro save a copy of him? Or could the records be corrupted because it saved both beasts together? So. Great question. We don't know on any of your questions there, but that's something it would be fun to see Leah Williams explore in X Factor or to see Zeb Wells explore in Hellions. I would imagine that Sinister has a copy of Dark Beast because Sinister, our Sinister, didn't like. Because when Dark Beast leaves the AOA, he gets shunted 20 years into the past in 616. And so the retcon is that the reason Sinister exterminated the Morlocks was because a lot of the Morlocks were created by Dark Beast genetic experimentation and that Sinister recognizes his own research in the Morlocks and is like, who's using my stuff? Mm. Because in AOA, Dark Beast was Sinister's apprentice, essentially. So he's always had sort of a interesting relationship with Dark Beast. I'm sure that there's a copy. I don't think Krakoa would want to resurrect Dark Beast. And I think that much like with the Madeline question, they would find an excuse not to. You know, I, I think that once you open the opportunity like you get a chance to, you know, to make a statement about what do the prerogatives of an X-Force require? Would it require, you know, Hank to go full Dark Beast? Would it require deciding like, well, you need essentially a Dark Beast to run this thing, so why don't we just get the original one? Right. (laughs) The longer that this can, you know, go on is a matter of of both a chronological, but more importantly, an unsettled, political and bureaucratic question like you get to you know do a story through an easy exploration of how the existence of this repressive state apparatus this you know potentially rogue state apparatus prompts you to go far enough down its own logic of compromise and justification that you Mm -hmm. could see a you know circumstance of decadence generally, you know, on Krakoa, caused by, exacerbated by um, X-Force, and use that, you know, as a, as, as a way into to telling those kinds of stories. And, you know, obviously one, you know, opportunity that you can, you know, use as a metaphor for that is to literally start deciding as dark as Beast has gotten, let's get, you know, the original OG Dark Beast that, as you say, Sinister must have somewhere. Right. And as for who has caused more harm, I think that that Mm. is a complicated question. I think that part of it is because AOA was a limited event, we don't really see the whole scale of all of the atrocities that that Hank participated in. I will say that they make him very explicitly a Dr. Mengele kind of figure. Oh, yeah. I mean, the mere existence of something called the breeding pits that he's supervising would imply, I think, that the AOA's version 
did more harm to more people, at least directly. That said, our Hank is really bringing up the rear in a speedy fashion. I mean, the whole thing in Tierra Verde is meant to, I think, kick him up a a notch. And if not for the fact that they managed in Secret Wars and the aftermath to solve the problem he created, he did set up a problem whereby the entire multiverse was going to be destroyed. So he's perhaps caused more harm, but the harm was ameliorated by other people. It was potential harm that has since been mitigated or harm that was done and then undone. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think that it's not a question of who's caused more harm and more a question of what are the different ways they cause harm and how does that track with them being two versions of the same man in different circumstances. We don't really get a whole lot of accountability on Krakoa. I have been surprised to see that, like, Warren, who is tortured into becoming an entirely new person, doesn't have, like, more of a problem with Apocalypse being there and in a position of power. And, like, you know, go go on for the, you know, the Morlocks with with Sinister and on there. And Well, that's that's one thing you should, again, you should read Hellions. This isn't Hellions? Okay, great. Well, the, the Morlocks certainly have a problem with, he's no longer called Scalp Hunter. Right. Thank God. For reasons. With Grey Crow <laughs> being someone who's just allowed to be around on Krakoa. The Morlocks, who have all been resurrected now, have a big problem with that. Now that we go from mutant kind as an oppressed minority with various ideological militias, you know, defending it as a matter of existential necessity to a nation state with an apparatus of state power, there's a whole lot of accountability questions that now the most powerful people on Krakoa are open to. And I mean politically powerful, not in terms of their mutant power. Mm -hmm. By virtue of their history and by virtue of of the positions, both formally and informally, uh, that they occupy. Is there any mechanism for delivering any form of accountability or even reckoning uh, through a Truth and Reconciliation Commission or something like that? with the crimes committed by the original five. Is there going to be any accountability for that? Yeah, well, I think that we're going to see in Marauders how the Quiet Council can be censured because clearly Sebastian Shaw has to go, right? Right. So there's that, but Sebastian Shaw is a character everyone hates to begin with. So it's not as provocative a question is what do you do when someone like Hank or Gene or Storm or Kurt I mean it doesn't have to be an original five person but if it was a core X-Man who did something heinous the way that Hank has now done several things that were pretty heinous what is the apparatus there and I think we're going to find out but we have to wait and see (laughs) well but and also you know what does it say about Krakoa if it will not deliver justice, if it will Correct. not deliver accountability for its most powerful people. If it's only willing to make examples of Sabretooth and exactly. Shaw, who exactly. no one likes to begin with, then what is justice is the question, right? And who operate on the periphery of the Xavier and Dream, even exactly. if now we have moved past that. And that's right. part of what they've this never kind been of really on our team. That's right. Yeah. That leads into a question from Adam Reck of Xavier Files. Hi, Adam, who writes, 
What is the best way to get Beast from the Hank McCoy of today to a true supervillain of tomorrow? And how many years in publishing should that take? I think we're almost there already. And I think literally all it would take, and they should do it, I think, in 2021, is do exactly what we're talking about. Explore the ramifications of this. Have someone, whether it's Gene or whether it's someone who has perhaps a more finely tuned moral compass than Gene, like Nightcrawler, for example, would be interesting. Mm -hmm. Have someone demand that Hank be brought to justice for what he has done as the conductor of X-Force, as he puts it. And then have him go full Dark Beast in the way that he almost did in the Bendis era with the Black Vortex and all of that. Have him escape. Have him leave Mm. Krakoa. Have him be a pariah from Krakoa and then be forced, as the Dark Beast once did, to inhabit the shadows, to be doing other things in order to seize the power he believes he should have, in order to advance scientific progress, in order to, like, I think that you just need to remove him from the power apparatus and force him to find other ways to get that power, because he will. I think a really subversive way you can do this is by having the end of it essentially be that Hank's solution is to go back to the Avengers. Yeah. That if there's going to be a place where he knows he will be insulated from accountability, he will be his sort of truest self, and he can be done with the mutant life that, you know, wouldn't appreciate him anyway and doesn't play to his strengths, the thing to do is to go back to being a hero on essentially a cop squad. Yeah, go hang out with Tony and Hank Pym. Be friends with Wonder Man again. But one thing also one thing also to mention, you mentioned at the top of the show that you weren't really an X-Force person. I, I really have liked a lot of X-Force. Mm-hmm. And we have a direct parallel potential with how when Remender does Uncanny X-Force, the whole series is about the team paying for the moral mistake it makes in killing Kid Apocalypse. Yes. I hope that we'll have with the genocide of Terra Verde, the same sort of constant referent to X-Force as we had with Uncanny. Yeah, I mean, you can't let those characters get away with that. You just can't. So to pivot out of Villain Beast, because that's super fun, but I liked this question also, and I think it ties into what we were just talking about. Luke Ruddick writes, longtime listener, first time questioning. Outside of a brief illusion in Extreme X-Men that never went anywhere, I'm pretty sure Beast is one of the few long-running X-Men to have never dated or hooked up with a fellow teammate, when even characters who aren't epic romances have had weird one-off dalliances or hookups. In a team full of soap opera love triangles, angsty crushes, and kinky danger room fun, do you think it says something about Beast as a character that he was never involved in all of that? And... Here's what I would say to that. First of all, there are alternate universes like X-Men The End that like to pair him off with Cecilia Reyes, which I think is part of why it's interesting that she's now in X-Force as a supporting character. But in the main line, you're absolutely correct. And I think that it does say something very significant about him as a character. We've talked about how Hank is a self-hating mutant. I think that he looks to external sources for validation, both in 
his close friendships outside of the original five X-Men, which are with characters like Wonder Man, who are not mutants, and in his love interests. I mean, his first love interest is Jewish librarian Queen Vera Cantor, mm-hmm. who later has a fun punk reinvention of herself in the 80s in X-Factor. And, and, and if I recall correctly, Hank does not take that well. No, she shows up with half of her head shaved and he's like, Vera, what's become of you? And dumps her and starts dating Trish Tilby, also a human. So I think that that's always been sort of part of his thing. And then when you look at the love interest he's had since then, since Trish, that was the most major love interest, it's Abigail Brand, who is a mutant, but is more concerned with being an alien. You know what I mean? That's sort of more her priority. And in that case, it also was her saying to him, your blue cat appearance doesn't turn me off because my dad was blue and furry. Like I'm an alien. I'm a space alien. So it was sort of a repudiation of the reason Trish had dumped him, which was that he had become too mutant for Trish to feel comfortable having sex with him, which is a really interesting place Morrison takes it. I think that his love interests are almost always tied up in his desire to escape from the mutant milieu. There's a really funny one-off by Jeff Jensen in X-Men Unlimited 36 in 2002. That's the one with the really gross cover where Kitty Pride is like sexily waiting outside the Dean's office. I don't think I know this one. It's a bad cover. Look it up. It's not great. Um, But in it, there is a story, I forget what it's called, but it's by Jeff Jensen, where Beast comes across, and this is like Kitty era Beast, like Morrison era, comes across a lady Kitty Beast who's like dying and like nurses her back to health and projects all of this stuff onto her and is like, maybe this is my soulmate because this is after Trish has dumped him. He's like, maybe this is the woman that I can love who's like me. And Jean finally has to be like, Hank, um, just FYI, I read her mind and this isn't a human mutant. It's actually a mutant cat. Oh, wow. How that works is not explained. It doesn't really track with how we understand X gene mutation to work otherwise. But basically, this cat is a, it's like a cat with an X gene and it has evolved into this bipedal creature. And Hank has projected completely this fantasy of like, oh my God, it's a mutant just like me and we're going to be in love. And then it's actually just a cat that's dying and has an X gene. That is very Morrisonian, but also... Was that Cat's Eye from the Hellions? Like, or... No, but that's the thing is that's also Cat's Eye's origin. Right. right. But Cat's Eye just thinks she's a cat. But like, are, like, does that kind of work a little bit as a functional retcon? That like, once we know that, once we know that there can be mutant cats, and once we know that mutant cats can express their mutation in terms of evolving to a state where they're like functionally, cognitively indistinguishable... And, you know, could even believe themselves to be... No, 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 no. Because Gene... The whole point is Gene reads the cat's mind and is like, that's a cat, Hank. It doesn't have higher brain 
functions going on. So actually, oh, it, 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 it firmly establishes that Cat's Eye from the Hellions Could not be this was time. not. Got it. I see. Yeah, because the question with Cat's Eye from the Hellions, the original Hellions back in the day was... <laughs> Is she a fucking cat? She believed that she was a cat, and Emma was like, um, you're not a cat. You're a, a human. Mutant. You're not a cat. And it was sort of her dilemma. And this does confirm that Cat's Eye, who I would love to see more on Krakoa now that those Hellions are back, was not a cat. No, but also this story is insane and it's never been referenced again. (laughs) But I just think it's really funny that like the one time Beast is like, yes, I'm going to date a mutant. It turns out that it's not he can't even recognize that it's not a mutant. It's like a mutated cat. But yeah, I mean, I think that it it all goes part and parcel with his sort of rejection of that part of himself. And I think it's notable that he doesn't have any interest in dating other mutants, particularly that we ever see. Because like Warren dates Candy Southern for a really long time. But Warren's into Jean in the 60s. Yeah. Warren dates Betsy for the whole 90s. Like right. it's not a thing with him in a way that it feels like it's a thing for Hank. Also the... um. Warren dates that uh, human cop in X Factor, right? I forget her name. Charlotte Jones. Charlotte Jones. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like he, he dates, but I'm saying he dates humans and mutants. That's right. Like and Hank doesn't yeah. date mutants. I think it absolutely is something that reflects Hank's deeper character, and I think it's interesting. That brings me to a question that I think will lead us naturally into story recommendations because we have been talking mostly about the really recent stuff. Yeah. Um, but obviously, Hank has a you know, 57 year history. Jared Jones writes, hello, Connor. Love the podcast. I have a question about Beast. I'm finally diving headfirst into X-Men lore, but as it stands at this moment, my only reference point for a lot of these characters comes from the animated series, save for Beast, who I've read and enjoyed in older Avengers issues. I've come to love the fellow, but I do admit I'm missing a few crucial threads as to the tapestry that is Dr. Hank McCoy. As much as I'm committed to learning about this team, I also want to read the best stories this part of the Marvel Universe has to offer. So what are the most essential Beast-centric X stories? Thanks for the hours of fascinating and entertaining listening you've provided so far. Cerebro is the most. Well, thank you. Here's the thing about Beast. There are not a lot of essential Beast stories. Beast is a character who tends to exist in the story and serve a plot purpose like he's the smart guy and you go to him for a smart guy problem for most of the 90s he's just in a lab trying to cure the legacy virus drinking coffee yeah i would say that key things that are not avengers stuff definitely read the simonson x factor he has a lot of interesting stuff there then in the 90s i think that it's worth reading aoa to get the dark beast thing And there's also a storyline where our Hank is replaced by the Dark Beast. And that's a good one. Starts around X-Men 49 in the mid-90s. Obviously after Age of Apocalypse because Dark Beast has to be introduced. And then I would say that the really essential Hank story is Grant Morrison's new X-Men. Definitely the the Morrison X-Men, the Morrison new X-Men stuff, particularly E for Extinction. Um, that heartbreaking exchange with Gene as, you know, through Hank, we learn about secondary mutation. Right, because that's when Hank has experienced a secondary mutation and has evolved again into a sort of leonine cat-like form where he now has paws and a muzzle and is not 
the sort of fuzzy blue gorilla type that he had been since the 70s. And and this is horror to him. He's really traumatized over yeah. it. Yeah. Um, from there, I think, while I have a lot of problems with this run, as do you, uh, the, the Whedon Cassidy Astonishing X-Men is important for Beast's characterization, uh, particularly as we go back to Kavitha Rao. Yeah, I would say it's a useful thing to read in terms of understanding his character arc, for sure. And then um, his role in Second Coming, which I think is a tremendous, tremendous crossover. Like, really underrated. I love it so much. Because you, you, you start to get really forefront Hank stepping out as an ideological foil for Cyclops. For you know, Scott. For yeah. Scott, that you just never have before. You just sort of have that um, kind of background difference between the way they, they see things. Yeah, and it's different from the way that Scott and Logan are foils or exactly. from the way that Scott and Aurora are foils. It's like it establishes a new Exactly. There's a new pole thing there. Yeah. Yeah. And um it, you know, now becomes an issue for like both control of and definition of the X Men. I would agree. I like I've said on this podcast many times the decimation utopia period is just never my favorite because I didn't like the decimation and what it did to the X-Men as a metaphor. But that is where Hank's characterization, I would say, starts to crystallize into what it is now. Yeah. His sort of sanctimonious response to Scott and Emma's relationship. Certainly. To the way Scott and Emma conduct themselves. And then ultimately in Second Coming to x-force and scott's whole deal and the death of nightcrawler and other things like that i think that is where he is dispatched on the path that he now has been on for the last 15 odd years and i do think that that's probably pretty essential reading if you want to understand hank's full arc and then after that you really have to go to the bendis era because yeah. that's where Hank sort of becomes the villain in a lot of ways because he thinks he knows best because he's so obsessed with proving that Scott is wrong and it's good stuff. I mean, it is. I understand why people who are fans of the character as he existed in the seventies or as he existed on the nineties animated series don't love it. But to me, as someone who's mostly been pretty impartial, it's pretty interesting. This is, you know, an interesting point, and one that brings us back to something, you know, mentioned at the top of the episode, is that, you know, starting at that point with Second Coming, and the the fracture uh, and sort of ideological antipode between Scott and Hank, like really also, particularly after, you know, we get to Avengers versus X-Men, the trajectory that he sets on, they never, like, come out and really say it, particularly during the Bendis run, that, like, what separates Hank and Scott there, in, in the sense that, like, Hank is trying to prove that Scott is wrong, is that Scott is fucking right and Hank is fucking wrong. Correct. I feel like it's very hard to talk about those trajectories without fundamentally that judgment coming into the equation at, at a certain point. And, like, one of the ways that they want to indict Scott, I feel, on the page is by showing that Hank is against him. That, like, one of his best and oldest friends, one of, the, yes. you know, the truest Xavierian students, someone who has exemplified assimilationism in a way that, that Scott 
never does, never could, never wanted. He's always chafed against despite himself, right. Despite himself, right. It's a fundamental contradiction in what Scott believes and how Scott lives. But leaving that aside for a second, it speaks to, as we were talking about with the Mutant Liberation Front, the way in which comics has a difficult time, and the X-Men in particular in a really ironic way, conceptualizing of liberation movements as anything besides terrorist movements. Scott is on a liberationist path. Hank is indicting him for it and can only understand it through the lens of terrorism, through the lens of what the X-Men have fought against. I agree. The way it's framed, especially because it leads into schism and Avengers versus X-Men, where we're supposed to think Scott is wrong, is that Hank is used to indict Scott on the page. And the way it felt to me reading it then was that we're supposed to agree with Hank, or at least that's the intention. But I didn't. Yeah. And so what Bendis does that's interesting is Bendis approaches it from the point of view that Hank was completely wrong. And Bendis is not shy about pushing back on political things he thinks another writer got wrong. I mean, notably in the middle of his X-Men run, he has Kitty Pride deliver a monologue specifically repudiating the assimilationist speech that Rick Remender has yes, Havoc give in Uncanny Avengers. Really unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, as a Havoc fan, Havoc has always been someone inclined toward assimilation. That's always been sort of his thing, but I didn't enjoy that book or that moment or, you know, the way that Remender spoke about it uh, in interviews. I'm an enormous, enormous Remender fan. I think Rick Remender has written some of the most brilliant comics uh, of the last, you know, 15 years or so. Um, but that was a very rare and uncharacteristic misstep, I thought. That really didn't do it for me. And Bendis, notably, does a real take that. So I, I think that, similarly, the way that Hank and Scott are written in Bendis's run from the beginning is almost a repudiation of the idea that Hank was right in Second Coming. You know, I, I definitely think that, like, on the page, for a whole lot of the period even after Hank has become, like, very far down the path that that he is on, um, we are still supposed to read him as a gauge for how Scott has gone astray. And Mm -hmm. that's something that, you know, as as we're saying, not to belabor the point, like, once you don't accept that... Once you believe that Cyclops is right, then, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, then, then so much of all of that kind of unlocks Hank... And what Hank has always been uh, when you revisit his character history in light of that. Once you, you know, see the light of Cyclops mm-hmm. <laughs> of Bendis, and particularly Bendis era Cyclops. Yeah, absolutely. So one last question that's not really related to Hank, but that I think is probably just worth addressing. Angel, who notes that they use they them pronouns writes hi connor and guest i love listening to this podcast and it's really helped so far with my newfound interest in marvel comics i've heard a lot of talk about what comics to start with but not so much discussion on how to start should i be purchasing the issues i need secondhand or would an online subscription like marvel unlimited be a better option to start out I know I want to start with the Age of Apocalypse, for example, but I can't find a good way to get my hands on the books I need. I'm not sure how I feel about having to read digital copies through Marvel Unlimited, but looking to purchase physical issues online always pulls up collector's editions or otherwise fairly expensive purchasing options. I just feel like I'm missing something and everything seems so inaccessible. Any help you could provide would be much appreciated. 
So here's the unfortunate fact, especially right now. I think that Marvel Unlimited is probably your best bet. And I know that not everyone likes reading comics digitally. I always prefer a physical copy. But Marvel Unlimited, there are gaps in it that they are working to correct. But for the most part, it is an absolute treasure trove of almost everything you could want to read. And as of now, it goes all the way up to three months ago. So it's a pretty significant bang for your buck at this point. And... It's certainly more cost effective than purchasing specific issues through comiXology or whatever. If you wanted to go physical, then yeah, you could buy single issues or trades secondhand. I just think that you're going to be, particularly with the X-Men, which has such a convoluted history and lots of events that are franchise-wide, it is inaccessible. I mean, that's part of the problem. So I think that having a subscription like Marvel Unlimited where you can jump around and you can find like, here's the reading order for Mutant Massacre or whatever, and then just read it by hopping around the different titles is just often, if you can't purchase trades, a safer way to go just in terms of your wallet. Spencer, how are you reading your comics or back reading? Well, first, just to speak to that, if you're the kind of person who's like inclined to, you know, go deep on a character and like find the actual things to read about it. I, I would say very quickly, Marvel Unlimited is, is going to pay for itself. Yeah. You're exactly the sort of person for whom it's going to save money, you know, quickly. And I avail myself of that, particularly when like my wife is asleep and, you know, it's a dark room and I want to read something, uh, but I need it to be backlit. Uh, I don't, mm -hmm. I'm not particularly precious about how I read all my comics. I do have beloved, you know, things that uh, I'll do physically. And, you know, I, particularly now more than ever, I think I want to support my local comic shop. So I'm buying a lot yeah. of uh, single issues and I've had like basically my purchasing habits kind of uninterrupted for the last, you know, obviously with the exception of COVID, um, but yeah, if you you're know, pulling now, years, definitely yeah. support your local comic shop. But I think if you're trying to get back issues, it's not like you can go to the store right now and like rifle through the secondhand box in exactly. the same way that we used to be able to. Yeah. And hopefully will again. Hopefully, but hopefully once moment, there is a vaccine. Uh, yeah. But like, in this moment, it's tricky. Yeah. So that's, I think, you know, definitely that. But, you know, I don't like the heft of an omnibus. See, I love an omnibus. <laughs> oh, do you? Okay. <laughs> yeah, but also they're fucking expensive as hell. So I like, yeah. I treat myself to an omnibus every now and then. What's nice about the omnibus is that sometimes there's some supporting materials or whatever, but mostly it's that it looks beautiful on your bookshelf and it's a thing that you can have the creator's sign. It's a collectible object. It's not necessarily the most cost-effective or even, as you're saying, the most efficient way to read the story because they are big yeah so i splurged on like the jack kirby fourth world omnibus and Ooh, like that Alice. is like actually physically painful to read yeah i imagine like, that's really yeah, fucking it's heavy. enormous yeah. i'm surprised they fit that all into one volume like i said absolutely enormous it's big yeah. sure yeah <laughs> do you have any final thoughts spencer just to sharpen the point a little bit about what X-Force represents. Remember that this is a period in world history where a mutant nation is saying to former and current oppressor states that 
it insists not only on having a place amongst the nations, but a dominant place. That what X-Force is doing characterizes that moment really particularly in the sense that X-Force is attempting, like those oppressor nations, to set the terms of geopolitics in secret, violently, and outside of the ways in which nations like to think of themselves as civilized and operating according to what the geopolitical term would be, uh, the rules-based order. Mm -hmm. Now, the question always has to be in these circumstances is who does the rules-based order benefit and who does it persecute? Right. What we are seeing with Krakoa, possibly, but when Krakoa incorporates X-Force definitively, is that it will use that state power for the same oppressive means that all of these other powers that persecuted and still persecute mutant kind do. And it will do that on the justification of the state apparatus of persecution that these other nations inflicted first upon mutant kind. And that is playing with fire as every state with a security sector has learned as it tries to coexist, particularly as a free society, as something approaching a democratic society. We can debate whether any of the so-called Western democracies are, in fact, democratic. Right. And I think that, again, that underlines the imperfect but obvious metaphor that we've talked about with Krakow and Israel, where the question is, when does a state formed by oppressed people become an oppressor state? Yeah. And I'm interested to see how those questions are dealt with as the story goes on. What we are starting to see is X-Force deciding who, in fact, counts as a citizen of Krakoa. That this thing that is supposed to be focused externally has, in fact, a more corrosive impact internally. Is now policing the internal state. Exactly. And that is a good place to plug my book, Reign of Terror which Viking is going to publish in May of 2021 and deals very substantially with that theme, which I have been overjoyed, Connor, to talk with you in the context of the X-Men. Thank you so, so much for having me on. I hope that I passed the audition and can do this again. I've had such a tremendous time. I think probably, yes. Thank you. Spencer, for being my guest. Everyone should pre-order that book if this conversation has interested you at all. I recognize this is a little bit less of a lol fest versus other episodes of Cerebro, but I've really been wanting to dig into the political ramifications of Krakoa, and this felt like a really great opportunity to have an expert on these subjects come on, who is also a huge X-Men fan and break some of this down for us. I would love for you to have like an in conversation with Ben Percy where you just like, please dig in. So um, Ben, if you're listening, I don't know him. So I'm sorry to address you by your first name, <laughs> but Mr. Percy, if, um, if you're listening, I think the two of you would have a really fascinating conversation. And I would also just like to say, in case it is not clear, I think Ben Percy is writing the absolute hell. Oh, writing the it's... shit out of X-Force. Yeah. None, none of this should stand as... The, hopefully this comes across as us taking jumping off points from the issues. That, yeah, no, you know, obviously we're fascinated by the what team. they're setting up. And that's why we're that's the whole 
thing. So why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you on social media, plug anything else you want to plug, just take it away. Yes, thank you. Uh, you can find me, unfortunately, on Twitter too often, uh, at Attackerman, A-T-T-A-C-K-E-R-M-A-N. Uh, that's also my name on Instagram. Um, and you can read me most days of the week at The Daily Beast. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can email Cerebro with your questions, comments, and feedback at CerebroCast at gmail.com and find all the episodes plus transcripts of the episodes as I get them done. And more are coming soon, finally, at CerebroCast.com, which is the official landing page for the podcast. Thank you, as always, for your support. I have some very exciting guests coming up over the next few weeks, some ex-office talent, and I am really excited to talk to those people. So stay tuned. This fan base, if I could call it that, that has developed around this podcast is already so amazing to chat with and if i haven't responded to all of your emails thank you for your patience i'm going to try to get to everybody eventually so if you've been waiting since like september it's because i felt the need to reread something or something i don't know i'm, I'm not perfect i'm not perfect <laughs> thank you spencer again for being my guest i hope you had a good time i had an absolute tremendous time i've been looking forward to this uh you validated my election night choices uh, I love your podcast. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And I hope that by the time this airs, we will know that the Democrats have taken the White House. Fingers crossed. So until next time, everybody, thank you for listening and bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is 